Oh, I have a problem. A if problem. anybody just just super quickly before we start, uh, maybe you guys could help me with this. Let's see here. Wes, what do I have here in my hands? What is this? Do you know what this is? Uh, let's see. That's your Entraware Apollo. Boom! Wow, good. I just figured you'd say laptop. Yeah, this uh, also is also a laptop. This is the Entraware Apollo that I'm holding in my little hand right here. So I'll hold it up. I got my stickers. I got a Gunter sticker on there. Look at that. And you see what it's else I have on there? Machine. Wes, I have a I have a Fedora sticker on there. And so I thought I should make that sticker not a liar. And I, this is what I loaded Fedora 24 oh, on. Oh, very nice. And keeping it on there, it was my road trip uh, machine. Really? Wow. Yeah. I want to so give you've a, been trying it out. I want to give a plug to No Maps. Uh, no Maps, I use a lot. I didn't use it exclusively, but I use a lot of No Maps on Fedora 24 on the road trip. Wow. And uh, it was really cool. So there's if you haven't tried out No Maps, it's it's pretty cool. And uh, I've been really happy with Fedora 24 on the Apollo. The one problem, though. Oh, oh, what is it? So I did the updates because mm-hmm. you know me. I, you even have when to I, stay updated. Even when I'm on a MiFi connection on, an, on a road trip in an RV, I'm updating my packages. I mean, I like, mean you have to. It's priority, Wes. It's a priority. Uh, so I got all the updates installed. Went real good, except for the latest kernel won't boot. It just won't, won't boot. No. Ooh. Yeah. All the other updates work fine. Latest kernel will not boot, and I just get a blank screen. And I did some quick uh, googling. <clears throat> checked you don't on have the, that uh, old kernel laying around, do you? No. I well, that's what I did. That's what I'm just yeah. Booting. yeah. They just keep it in the boot menu. I mean, it's 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 recoverable because I just chose it from the other boot menu, and I'm up and running. I did some searching around. I didn't find anything. So if anybody out there has a Skylake Intel machine with Intel, all Intel parts, something kind easy, of like right? the Apollo, let me know if you've run into this problem and what you did to fix it. And also, if there's a way I can blame it on the fact that I installed Snap packages, be sure to let me know at Chris LAS. That's right. <laughs> Hang on a minute. Repeat the question. What have you done? <laughs> so I've got Fedora 24 on the Apollo. See, it'd be better uh, if you knew what the, the kernel Fedora. version was. Yeah, that I know. Outrage. Okay, well, I'll tell you right now. I'll boot it up. All right, so I have good news, Wes. I've brought it with me. <laughs> All right, so let's see. You've done tech support <laughs> before, <laughs> haven't you? In fact, I will reboot and I will give you the uh, kernel list right out of the uh, grub menu. So I'm getting it straight from the source. Wes will be my witness. As- mm, mainline. That's right. That's right. Okay, so I'm rebooting right now. Sure, boot re- boy. I tell you what, it boots up and boots reboots real fast. Or boot reboots real fast. So uh, my kernel options are um, the one that doesn't work is kernel four point six point three dash three hundred. So four point six point three dash three hundred. Okay, and then the one that does work is kernel four point five point seven dash three hundred. So four point five point seven was the you know it was like pretty much the kernel it shipped with. 4.6, which is the oh man, and here's here's the thing, guys. And I don't mean to be this guy. I don't mean to be this guy, but if you go back and you look at my uh, Fedora 24 news coverage when the uh, when kernel 4.6 was announced and uh, Fedora 24 was delayed in LAS, I suggested perhaps perhaps they ought to just delay it by one more week because that's all they would have had to yep, delay right. it by one more week. It had already been delayed. And ship it, right, it had already been delayed by two or three. Mm-hmm. And then just ship it with kernel 4.6 so that way people who get updates don't get, don't get their machines ruined. And, and Noah said to me, that's not necessary, Chris. They would have to do a whole bunch of testing. <laughs> they should just ship it later as an update. It won't be a problem. Well, you know what? I'm here to tell you, Wes. I'm here to tell you. <laughs> Not that it's unsolvable. I'm sure we'll have a solution. That's an interesting statement for Noah to make. I'm a little surprised. You could go back and watch the episode. It is in the video. And so I'm here to tell you, Wes, that it might have been just a little bit better if they just would have shipped it with 4.6 yeah. as a mainline feature. But that's okay. 
I'll get it working. Otherwise, Fedora 24 on the Apollo, really nice. Like, uh, I, I just didn't even care about the battery. I was totally honey wow. badger. It was, I, I mean, probably six hours. I don't know. That's great. I was playing Minecraft with my son over Wi-Fi, not having to be worried about plugged in. That really is a slick little machine oh, man. there. Super happy. I'm really glad I I, uh, I put Fedora on here just because the the slick, minimal GNOME setup, and I did a few tweaks to Fedora with like Fetty mm-hmm. and, and whatnot, it just makes for a great package. So if I get I that. Like you, I think we need like Chris Lass's guide to livable Fedora or something like that. Yeah, I'm working on it. Because you talk about it a lot. But. I'm going to try. I'm trying to keep Fedora 24 on this bad mamma jamma for as long as possible. So uh, I'm working on it. If, if And I, I'm sure somebody out there has a fix for that. Yeah, probably. Maybe even by the end of the show, we'll have it. I saw one thread. I haven't read it yet. I put oh, it in Slack. All right. Okay. We'll start the show. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 153 for July 12th, 2016. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that's so packed full of content, we have one of those oversized load signs. It's kind of embarrassing. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hello, Wes. It's good to be back with you. Oh, it's wonderful to see your shining face. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You know, to celebrate the return from vacay, yeah, I said it, we have a great show. We have a great show. We have not only updates. like we, So excited. <laughs> I know. We, uh, so Wes and I have been, there's a topic we have been wanting to discuss for, what, four weeks? A while now. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of evolved in that time, too, so it's perfect to talk about it this week. We'll get more into that later, though. We also have a little tech support for Chris to do. I discovered my ISP is doing a like man-in-the-middle proxy on me. Intercepting SSL connections, intercepting wow. HTTP connections. Yeah. That is wild. It's aggressive. It's nasty. Um, I've got the Netalyzer report. We're going to talk about it and then maybe come up with a few ways I could DIY or brainstorm or maybe a service I could work with that works great with Linux to get around some of these problems. It's also just good if you have uh, some privacy concerns, you want to protect your traffic online. We'll be discussing that in a, of course, Linux user-focused way in today's episode. There is... Big reviews hitting the web for the world's best Linux distribution. We'll tell you which distro that is, what the reviews are saying. We've also got updates from the horse's mouth in here. And then towards the end of the show, we're going to talk about Matrix. No, no, not not the Neo kind of Matrix. And not the math thing. No, no. You know, it is an overused word, as the chat room was saying earlier. Uh, Matrix is a technology we talked about a long time ago, really before I even really understood what Slack was. Right. And it's such a better idea than Slack. It's so much more than that because it's a bunch of open source standards. It's a, it is a platform. We have an interview with one of the developers. We have a major development in a pretty cool way that's come out, uh, I think, just in the last week or so. It's written in Rust. It's going to work with Matrix. We're going to tell you all about it and why you should even care about these words I'm saying right now. So before we do any of that, let's bring in our virtual lug. Time appropriate greetings, Mama Room. Hello. Hello. Hello, everybody. Hello. 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 Oh, I, that makes me so happy every time. <laughs> what, the soundboard? Yep. <laughs> Hello, guys. So uh, we have right now some big breaking news to get to. We have to start off with the biggest story in the entire Linux ecosphere. This is CNN Breaking News. Linux Mint 18 is the best Linux desktop period ever. Ever. 
Stephen Jay says he's been using Linux for 25 years, and today the best desktop is the latest version of Linux Mint, Linux Mint 18, Sarah, with the Cinnamon interface. Uh, over at InfoWorld, uh, Jim does a roundup of different reviews. Hectic Geeks is Linux 18 is how Linux should be done. DistroWatch, Linux Mint 18 is stable and problem-free experience. Unix Mint, Linux Mint 18 has it all. Matthew Moore says two thumbs up for Linux Mint 18. And the reviews go on. They're all positive. They're all super positive, Wes. And you know what? I thought, I thought this first comment – I'm not sure if it's the first comment anymore. Yeah, it's not the first comment anymore. Too bad. The first comment that was on Stephen's article uh, summed it up for me. Um, I hear this every single time with Linux Mint. And I generally give it a positive review myself, but <laughs> I don't know if it's the best Linux, period. I don't know if it's the best desktop distribution in 25 years. Mm-hmm. But boy, the hyperbole is strong with this one. Right. And it almost makes me sort of want to repel from it. And it like, just, ugh, just, ugh, I don't want that. Mm-hmm. Um, I... When I looked at it, I thought it was it was adequate and good. I thought the improvements were nice. I think part of the part of the problem too here is that there's like I mean obviously you have to what he doesn't mention as much is what the audience he's writing for here is. So I think if it, if he's talking about people coming from Windows or new Linux users or people who just want a computer without any of the other joys and awesome things that uh, Linux users know how to do, then maybe that's right. Maybe that's true. I'm, I'm not sure that it is. Wow, but... I am I am that is. That is exactly the conclusion I came to. You nailed exactly what I was thinking. Like, perfectly. This is if you like the Windows paradigm. Set it and forget it. Just, you know, like people will know what to do. Start menu, taskbar, icons on the desktop. uh, That, if you like that paradigm... This then this is a great distribution for you. If you like the UI that we came up with 25 years ago, 30 years ago or if you if you want to give if you want to give credit to Xerox yeah, right. mm-hmm. you know okay then more than 30 years ago if that's the paradigm of desktop UI you want to go with and you think that's probably a good way to go for the next 5 10 years then Linux Mint 18 is a great desktop yeah. for you I mean they've polished a lot the X apps still have a weird name but they're not terrible you know it's a very pleasant and usable experience but it's not yeah. exciting and it's probably not I mean, best probably if, if best means more than usable and what is expected, then I don't know if it's best. I, I actually think it's a great release, and I'm I'm I am just sort of plain devil's advocate here because it obviously serves a market, um, and I think the donation model, the do- donation revenue, show that for Clem that people really like what he's doing here. So I think there is obviously a market that this Absolutely. still serves. I guess part of me, what part of me, what it does actually, if I'm being if I'm being sincere with my criticism, I would say the part that does repel me is. It feels like a lot of the credit goes to Ubuntu 16.04 and then they put stuff on top of that. Like if you took out the Ubuntu stuff, you took out the Ubuntu packages and you took out – it it feels like it gets attention in a way that – that Ubuntu flavors, official flavors, don't. That's true. You're right. It's con- it seems people consider it more separate. I yeah, mean, they it consider is, it is, but but it's but in the some ways way that it's it produced. Is, yeah, is, I mean, not as much. Right. In some ways, it's more. It is just. It, it is just an unofficial flavor that has a lot more. Own, like well, not even that lot. Just its own custom packages on top of it, and but the way it's talked about is almost like it's its own entire operating system. Mm-hmm. If you think about if you think about the whole fact that the under the underlying seventy percent 
or maybe even arguably 90% of the operating system is created by somebody else, does it still hold up that it's the best desktop ever when it's based on 90% of somebody else's work? Maybe best desktop flavor ever? No, it's fine and fair to say that. Realistically speaking, it's our mentality that this is all one system that actually screws this distribution. If we just claim that there are different operating systems, because they are, they are free to diverge when they want, free to make stupid decisions too. True. So it's like, just consider them different operating systems, let them innovate on their own. And then for once and for all, we will actually look at, well, this suits my purpose or not. Hmm. We'll be able but- to benefit from innovation. Things that are good to crossbreed, we crossbreed, but the rest, it's unique. I don't know if I completely agree. Wimpy, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, does it... Does this feel like 90% of the work is being done by somebody else and that feels when you take the overall product into consideration, you should factor that in? Or is it a completely separate beast? Well, when I started Ubuntu Mate and it was unofficial, really what I was taking there was the Ubuntu base and a lot of the packages from the Ubuntu system and then adding the Mate packages on top. Now, to give you some idea, right now, there are 35 packages that define the Ubuntu Mate bit Mm. that sits on top of the Ubuntu bit. And 35 packages is a very, very small number of packages in totality when you compare everything else. Yeah, way smaller than what Mint is. Mint is considerably more. Well, uh, no, well, only because they choose to do that, not because they have to do that. (laughs) But but okay, but that's a fair point. I'd I'd say the following, though. When the user comes in and sees a set of experiences of pre, uh, like we say that uh, default is king, happens to a lot of people. Hmm. They're coming for the default experience that was curated. Even though they selected the base, they selected the base and did the enough necessary adjustments so that it makes that group feel at home. I'd say that that's, and also who's the first to answer in case of necessity. If you are doing that and not just delegating to upstream, hey, hey, go go bother Ubuntu guys. That's an Ubuntu issue. If they're not doing that, they're actually taking responsibility for their system. I think it's fair to say that it's their work. Yeah, I think that's an I think that's an interesting standard, and I think that is actually probably that right there. That that last piece is probably one of the clear markers that makes them their own beast versus a flavor. Uh, but yet, technologically underneath. Still, so much of the code is shared. I guess the point I'm making is, is it really the best? I think that's overshooting. I think I think when you make that statement, you're kind of best going for clicks. subjective, right? Yeah. It's I, qualifiers. So you, can, you can't never get best out of on <laughs> being personal. So yeah. I guess that will be that. Okay. So before we move on to something completely different, any other thoughts on that topic? Okay. So I say completely different. Let's talk about Solus. Ike's here to tell – I don't even know how this is possible because I've been told um, that the process of transitioning to a rolling release is big. I mean if you ask the folks over at OpenSUSE or Canonical, they've ever implemented in the case of OpenSUSE or in Canonical considered going rolling release. Apparently, you have to reinvent all of the things and reconsider all of the things. But somehow, somehow. When you're a small, nimble distribution. That distribution that keeps surprising us. That's Solo Us from Ike and team over there. Uh, in fact, there's a post here by Josh that talks about 
The latest release of Solus basically becoming indefinitely supported because the distro is going rolling. Ike, how can you do this? Are you crazy? I've heard this is unstable. What are you doing to us all? Uh, well, I mean, obviously I'm crazy anyway. I mean, that's kind of a given <laughs> okay, at good. this confirmed. point. Okay, check. <laughs> uh, that one's totally confirmed. But I mean, as for going rolling, it's it's kind of easier for us because we stuck we suck at trying to do the whole stable model. <laughs> uh, like, we're really, really not good at it. We're better at doing the rolling stuff. I mean, for for an example, Solus has already got, like, uh, Mesa 12.0, and we was using the RC4 to land OpenGL 4.3 in Solus already. Like, we already had that stuff in. Uh, we got GCC 5.3, DLIPC 2.23. So we kind of sucked at not being rolling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so it, seems like you guys have, uh, it seems like you guys have, have opted for stability in key areas. Like, one that I think a lot of people would appreciate that want to do gaming is graphic stack seems to be pretty on target remains pretty like a, like that's a goal of yours to keep that stable correct oh yeah definitely like the graphics stack it's basically sacred in solace yeah so there are elements of solace that you're very more cautious with but it seems like you just i mean like for example like you said you just ended up to make it great ended up putting a lot of this newer stuff in there so what is the transition like to go from rolling is that just now you'll just update the repos more often and that's all that really changes or is there actually more changes behind the scene well, I mean, you, you gave the examples of like uh, OpenSUSE and you know, like the the other digitals. They're they're designed differently than Solus was. Um, I, I mean, our packaging is completely different. Everything is that little bit more simpler. The way that we maintain packages, and the way that it worked out is actually easier to do a rolling release than it would be to make it static because we haven't had a Solus two yet, have we? Right. Right. So right. we're still in this one particular repo. So we don't have all that infrastructure in place that says that this has to go into this repo and then it goes into that other repo and this is how you branch between them. So we don't actually have anything to undo, which mm. makes it a lot easier mm. for us. I got you. And Wimpy, you had a question. Yeah, Ike, I was just wondering if you've had to uh, devise or communicate any new rules in order to support being a rolling release, or is it just business as usual now? Uh, well, I mean, it's not strictly uh, business as usual. Uh, to support this, you're gonna, you know yourself, you're going to have to have a few tooling changes in places. The main thing that we have to avoid now is ABI breaks. So anyone who's ever been on a full rolling release will know the horror and pain of one day getting an update to something like libpng and their system <laughs> no longer boots. Right? Ah. So. Yeah, I mean, for things like that, we have to completely avoid. But that just means building slightly extra tooling around Y package to generate ABI reports. So we will know in advance that something is going to break and these reverse dependencies need unbreaking before we then sync them. So we've got the unstable repo, which is like, do not touch this. <laughs> do not ever use this unless you are on IRC 24-7. And that's kind of what we've always had. That's the immediate dumping ground of the builder. Um, but once those have proven themselves and we're all right with them, they then get synced back into the main repo, and then all the main repo users get the updates. Hmm. Well, so so this is this is having the mechanics to handle SO bumps, for example, and rebuilding all of the affected packages. Yeah, I mean, I would say that would be the the, the main problem with it, um, especially have you, yeah. if you had something like a GNU to a TLS. If that got an update, and you don't want a brick network manager, for example, mm-hmm. because then nobody can ever get an update again. <laughs> and which a bit of a problem. <laughs> evil. What about what about sort of um, approaches to patching upstream? Are you planning to ship upstream uh, as vanilla as possible, or are you going to be carrying distribution patches? 
So in the majority of cases, we try and carry things as vanilla as we can. Uh, in some cases, that doesn't always work. There's some kind of build issue or it doesn't yeah. quite work with the way that things got installed. But I mean, I think that's kind of standard distro weight that you would have anyway versus technical debt. Um, so, But these, they, these are to support the build system rather than to change behavior or look and feel, for example. Right. Um, there's only a very minimal amount of places that we've done anything that would impact the look and feel. Um, that was things like the default G-Sentence schemas, but that's because we ship Budgie by default. We've actually shipped, we've started moving away from that and doing everything in a single branding package, which will then mm-hmm. provide all the relevant overrides, like you would do with uh, a bunch of Mate. Yeah. Um, so keeping everything as vanilla as we can, because then you have less of a diff to worry about. If a new update comes through, well, you haven't got to read base a dozen batches. Which obviously makes life that much mm. easier because mm, yeah. it's just a bump. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So also, along with all of those things, uh, there is an improvement to YPKG package manager, which I don't – just to explain this to me like I've never used uh, YPKG before, Ike. What, what is the benefit of supporting Git as a source? I have an idea, but I just wonder if you could actually explain it to me from your mouth. Well, there's a couple of reasons to support this. Um, not everyone has the infrastructure to actually distribute their own tarballs. Mm. Uh, so if you look at something like GNOME, they have hundreds of tarballs going back years and years like to GNOME 2.x, <laughs> and they're fine to do that. Not all the projects can do that, and quite often the tarballs go missing or the tarballs aren't generated. And, you know, like a lot of the projects now aren't even bothering to generate the tarballs anymore. They, you know, mm-hmm, they're, yep. they're relying on GitHub tags, which are auto-generated yep. and a complete not a nightmare. Yeah. Um, like most of the Arch uh, AUR packages. So the way that we're going to do it is if something is Git only, we're going to support the Git and then you'll be able to download it via a tag, which is, you know, especially what you want to do. You want an immutable tag, an immutable point in history. So we'll be able to build directly from Git now, which will, hmm. it just opens up options for people, yeah. I guess. That's wow. I, I got to say, uh, almost almost on a damn near weekly basis, your project has something that makes me go, that's kind of cool. And I'm in, in particular, the rolling, <laughs> it's just the fact that I won't have to worry about, you know, yeah. that. Uh, yeah. I'm, I can see a ma- uh, but, but machine also, or two going to solve. But also having some confidence that, you know, my graphic stack's probably going to be pretty solid, which mm-hmm. means that when I want to chill out and play video games or. It feels like a nice mix. Of, like you're optimizing the results, yeah. not just new things or staying stable. It's, mm-hmm. it's a happy medium. Yeah. I mean, if I might elaborate on that whole graphics thing. So. I mean, obviously, I knew straight away when I was doing, you know, like the work we did with Linux Steam integration, the mm-hmm. Solar Steam runtime. Obviously, I knew how important that was already, but I only recently got to experience that fully for the first time myself. So I bought an Optimus laptop for Solus because mm. we have to enable these evil things. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like a, an NVIDIA GTX 765M, I think. So if, like for me, this is the first time I've basically bought anything with a graphics card since I was 15. Oh, congratulations. Wow. <laughs> right? So, I mean, that was like an Inno3D GeForce FX5200 tornado. <laughs> right? The sacrifices you make for the user base. Yeah, so I finally got this one. I was like, okay, I'm going to try out these games that everyone else is playing. So, originally, I put Ubuntu on it because I wanted to see... Yeah, I, I know, I, I went and used another distro. I know, I'm bad. Ooh. But I wanted to see how Optimus support actually worked and how, how it was implemented in other places. So I put Ubuntu on it, and it was basically a case of 
either use the NVIDIA or don't. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, which basically brings your battery life down from something like four hours to 40 minutes. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> it's like, you are screwed. You're going nowhere. Keep the plug in or you're going to die and you're done. So I was playing it on that and I was playing um, Counter-Strike Global Offensive. Never played it before in my life. And I was like, I'm going to have a go with this. And it was it was running okay, but I had to put it down onto medium settings. So at some stage, I completely bricked the Ubuntu install because apparently I don't know how Debian and Ubuntu work anymore. <laughs> like I've just forgotten. Uh, so I put Solus on it, completely forgot about all the settings, didn't bother putting the, uh, changing any of the settings, put CSGO on there, and it was running like really fluidly. And I was like, does Steam sync the graphics settings? So I had to look at it. And on Solus, it was running on the high settings, whereas I had to put it on the medium settings because I was lagging on Ubuntu with the Ubuntu 12.04 runtime that comes with Steam. And there was a, def- a definite performance in- uh, increase just by using a newer runtime. So it's, it's not me saying that, you know, like, Solus magically makes it faster or anything like that because, you know, then we'd have to have benchmarks and we'd have to have pissing contests and right, all of that stuff. Right, sure. But just by having the newer updated stack, like, Steam ran infinitely better. Yeah. So I'm kind of hoping that other projects now adopt that philosophy and, and try and go for their own native updated yeah. runtime. As, as somebody who's tested that myself, I, I completely agree. Um, and, so, you know, we see a lot of the updates from, like, Pharonix reviews and yeah. other things talking about oh, yeah. the graphics stack. So yeah. it's, like, exciting to see those features yeah. in your hands. Yeah. So uh, so right now, I see Wimpy in the chat room says uh, he's hiding his uh, laptop running Solus. So right now, if I go download the uh, Solus ISO and I install that version, will I effectively be on a rolling release immediately? Uh, yeah, basically, but what I would do is wait until Sunday when 1.2.1 comes out. I know, I'm always dropping bombshells. <laughs> so <laughs> so 1.2.1 is going to come out on Sunday, and the reason is that's got a couple of minor installer fixes as well as full oh. disk encryption and all that oh, crap. Okay. Um, there, was a, there was a tiny little bug which came up with two users. One of them, funny enough, was Softpedia, who hmm. <laughs> installed Solus on a Chromebook. No, oh, as you do. Yeah, sure, of course. Uh, as you do, yeah. Uh, but there was a minor bug that was encountered on there that we'd, would crash the installer, so that's since been fixed. But yeah, it's basically going to be on, you're on this repo, and we don't break you, and you keep running Solus forever. So once that's done, we get to do the cool stuff, like put in GNOME 3.20, and you know, update more hmm. of the graphical stack, hmm. and all the core libraries. You hear that, Fedora 24? You better get your act together. All right. Solus is chasing you. <laughs> <laughs> that Apollo is looking hungry for a new distro right now. You know, it's got that, it's got that look in its eyes. Well, thank you, Ike, for stopping by and giving us an update on that. I, uh, oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Sounds like a very interesting development. So I, I want to do uh, a little discussion with you guys about uh, a problem I ran into uh, just over the last couple of days. In fact, I'll give you the whole story. I'll give you the whole, like, disappointing, like, you guys will totally feel my pain story. Uh, and I have a feeling in that discussion, DigitalOcean is going to come up. So let's do the pluggy plug right now for DigitalOcean. Go over there and use the promo code DO on plug to get a $10 credit. That's one word lowercase. You just smoosh it all together, DO unplugged. It's a simple cloud hosting provider with their entire infrastructure built around Linux. They use KVM for the virtualizer, which – I mean, I personally think KVM is the best virtualizer out there. I love KVM. I, if I build my own virtual machines, I use KVM. Mm-hmm. And so 
they're checking two boxes right there with Linux and KVM. And then the third box that they check is their entire infrastructure is SSDs. And then the fourth box that they check, seriously, like I'd be happy with three of these things at this There's point. There's so many boxes. The fourth thing is they have great internet connections into these boxes. And then there's a five – yes, there's five things. There's five things. They also have a great interface. Oh, there's six. Oh. Six. There's six Maybe things. Seven. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I forgot about this. Uh, they also have like this incredible API that oh the API we use yeah. on a mm-hmm. daily basis here on Jupiter Broadcasting to like control okay. it with our chat room bot. But seven? no, seven? it couldn't be seven, Wes. So well, I they guess have every operating system, yeah, pretty they, much that you yeah, every, ever want to install. I mean, they've got even even FreeBSD. Yeah, right. And I guess I, I guess there could be an eighth. Yep. The really really good documentation, mm. like the stuff that gives that makes yep. the Arch Wiki look like Amateur Hour, and I love the Arch Wiki. We all do. We all do. Don't tell the people over at DigitalOcean that their really great documentation would basically be applicable to any Linux installation because then they might stop doing it. <laughs> DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code DOUnplug. Smoosh it all together and get a $10 credit. You uh, could try the $5 rig for two months for free. Or you could run a rig that's whatever spec you want and just use it hourly. Like, you know, spin it up. Create something and then destroy it. The serious part about this is, is like I joke around, but one of my favorite things about DigitalOcean is you can spin up a rig instantaneously practically and you can have an entire application stack or a base rig. And when you combine the ease of doing that with you know being able to base it on templates or previous images and the hourly pricing and our promo code, it basically comes down to you can have incredible compute power up in the cloud. As much as you want. For like nothing for a while using our promo code Deal Unplugged and you support the show. That keeps us going because the way they track this, instead of us collecting data on who watches the show and what parts of the show you watched and where you watched it from and what your age is and what your sex is and how much money you make. And when's the last time you've heard Jupiter Broadcasting ask you to take an audience survey? When's the last time? We don't do that. I don't want your data. I just want your downloads. And then when you use the promo code DO Unplugged, that's the only mechanism they have to track to know that it worked. That's the arrangement we have. There's no data sharing here. There's no like Stitcher, like all the information kind of being shared. You use the promo code DO Unplugged. That registers as a use over there. That says, hey, our investment in Jupiter Broadcasting is paying off. That's the system. You get a credit. We get acknowledgement. DigitalOcean gets a new customer. It's a super slick system. And it doesn't involve a whole bunch of spying data. I think that's pretty cool. So you get a great product. Everybody wins. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code Unplugged, And a big thank you, DigitalOcean, for sponsoring the Unplugged program. Okay, so I'm looking right here. I got a Netalyzer report. High-end stuff here, Wes. And if you guys haven't heard of Netalyzer, which you probably have because it's for forever old, uh, you can get the ICSI Netalyzer command line client. It's just so fun to say. Yeah, the, the real, you know, the real actual nice tool is an Android app. It's legitimately nice. Oh, really? I love it. But they also have a Java applet that you can download, just a jar, and then run it on the command line. And then it generates you a fairly impressive, comprehensive report. And what it revealed to me was that I was behind an HTTP and HTTPS proxy and also intercepting FTP connections. Wow. Yeah, uh, and it'll tell you this as well. And it, it does it by using a few different metrics, but primarily they know what I'm connecting, what IP I'm connecting from, and what IP I'm connecting to. And if there's something in between us, so if the request originates from my IP, but the actual connection they comes, don't from see a, it, and right. it comes from a different IP, then they know it's been proxied. And they have a couple different tests to verify that. They've also indicated that some of my DNS results 
are getting kind of mushed up in here. Oh, no. Some to, to popular websites. That's like insidious. Yeah, here. Yeah, right here. So six popular names have been have moderate anomalies. We are unable to find reverse name associated with the IP address provided by your ISP's DNS server, although we expected to find a name. And it's for things like Chase.com, WellsFargo.com, Yahoo.com. Their DNS, what it is, and I've done some additional testing after this, is their DNS server, my ISP's DNS server, in some cases, has uh, here it is, <laughs> has a six thousand and one hundred millisecond response time to my DNS queries. Six thousand millisecond response time to my DNS that seems queries. Pretty suspicious. Yeah, it's bad, bad, bad. So why is it so bad? Uh, well, let Chris tell you a story here, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, for many reasons, some of which are economic. I live in an RV. I love it. I would not change a thing. I love it. I live on the, the coast. Freedom, the road. The West Coast is beautiful. Oh, it sure is. I live right there on the water. I couldn't be happier about that. And it's only possible because I live in, a, in an RV. Um, and I don't own the space. I just I have it for oh, – it's an RV thing. Anyways, there is no way to get a data connection out there. There's no Comcast. There's no Verizon. There's no Frontier. There's no wire that's going to come to where I'm at. The right. only data connection I can get is over cellular. You're like living in the future, man. It is a little, it is a little like that in some ways because – it's also like living in the past, more so. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, in some ways, it's like, wow, look at me. No wires. Everything's wireless. All my media consumption, everything I do is over, is over a MiFi connection. And that does in some ways feel like that's probably the way it's going to go down the road. Uh, but in other ways, MiFi connections, especially where I live, are extremely unreliable. There's only one provider out of all of the U.S. providers wow. in the area. So where I live, and you can look it up on anybody's coverage map, is I live on the coast in LaConnor, Washington. There's only about 900 of us there, so you can actually probably come find me pretty easily. Uh, and there is tribal land all around us, and the tribes don't allow cellular tower installations. I see. There is, however, one state-owned island where they have been able to install one AT&T tower. And so that's your service provider. <laughs> that's right my service there. provider. Uh, and so limited uh, by the trunks available is, on the island. This is course. a particular particular situation I got into recently, where I discovered there is a thing, and I don't want to give too much information away, but there's a thing such as grandfathered unlimited plans that you can purchase on eBay. And there's not a lot of them; they're getting expensive. Yep. I, yep. So I may know some people with yeah. And when you purchase those plans. when you purchase one of these things, you essentially you you adopt. Or you, I guess, sublease would be the better. You sub rent, if you will, mm-hmm. a or purchase if you have a lot of money, a unlimited AT and T account. You're buying a contract or renting, subletting a contract. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I went that route as an experiment because uh, for me, data connectivity is pretty essential. So I've got, um, I have every, I have every provider because one of the nice things about Ting, who is a sponsor of ours, you get, is you get two. I get CDMA and GSM. And and I don't have to worry about caps. Now, I, I will have to spend more if I want to use a right. whole bunch of data. But, but it's I available. Don't. Right. So that is super nice. Then I have a Verizon um, MiFi, which is like like a like a, like a five gigger or something. Uh-huh. And yeah. they have like a no contract plan. And that's the one I never use unless I have to. Because yep. it's that's like. That's the only Verizon in town. Yeah, that's yeah. I'm in Wyoming on uh, Highway 90. And the only per- person here is Verizon. That's because this is literally something right. I drive. I drive. Right. So I'm like I just got back from Montana where there was 
when you go through the passes, there's just no connectivity. And even though I have every cellular provider in the RV, there's no, no connectivity. No. So, uh, and and also I should say I should probably disclose that Ting has provided me with a MiFi that I have been I have been using for quote unquote testing for a while now to, to in some ways legitimately test the Ting network as I move around to get a true sense of what Ting is like. Right. And I mean, you rep, you're. And as long as I don't go, as long as I don't go crazy, they don't they don't worry about the data on that line. Uh, so that's nice. That's but nice. where I'm at is is only AT and T. So I've gotten this old AT and T MiFi, this used AT and T MiFi, and I've this is what I've been connecting the uh, Lady Jupiter network to. Uh, be you know uh, outside the that's firewall. That's your main. Uplink. And I've recently, so you remember that you remember that uh, device you got me that uh, that was a firewall that I uh, could connect the MiFi to. That's right. That's yeah. Right. So about about uh, two months ago, when Noah was in town mm-hmm. uh, for uh, last ten uh, year anniversary or whatever, whenever, whenever, whenever that was, um, we upgraded that to a Cradle Point Wi-Fi access point. Oh wow! That uh, allows me to. It does, a rel- it does a few interesting things. I can connect MiFi's to it, and mm-hmm. then it will share that MiFi connection with the LAN. I can connect it to another Wi-Fi network. Nice. So if I, I repeat it. So if I take Lady Jupiter to an RV park that has Wi-Fi, I can connect to that, and then it repeats it to my LAN. And I can connect it to Ethernet, and it will repeat that. To, so it's really cool. That is really neat. And so I got that set up. It's all – and I'm like, wow, this is a huge upgrade. And I have a, I have a persistent LAN now, which – was Before so nice. it was hit or miss, right? Yeah. yeah. So now I, I always have a persistent LAN regardless of signal, which is really fantastic. And it all runs off an inverter that runs all the time. Even if, if Lady Jupes is disconnected from power, those things run off of an inverter that's connected directly to my battery bank. So my LAN is always online. It ha- it's, it's like the, the, the house is a built-in UPS. It's a real network. It's great. And That's amazing. I get the MiFi. I get it all hooked up. And I have negative 114 dB signal. And for those of you that maybe that's like less than one bar, one bar, negative 118 is no bars for where I'm at. So one negative 114 dB is You're pushing it, man. That how worked, do you like the edge now? It were yeah. It, well, actually, it was a little better, but it was <laughs> like it was 300k down and okay. about 96 kilobits up. So <laughs> awful. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> And that was that was sort of the situation for a couple of months. No big deal. I just went all offline on everything. Yeah. I, whatever. You know what? I, I just went – I doubled down on Cody and local media. And you end up at the studio or other places. Sometimes yeah. you can – Studio has 100 megabit down, so that's fine. So that was my solution for a while. But then I, I started thinking about wanting to be able to do productions on the road. In September, I'm going to go to a Linux conference and I'm taking Lady Jupiter down there and I want to be able to do shows from the road. Totally. And that's when I started looking into a new product built for RVs called WeBoost RV. And this does a 60 dB boost of all cellular network provider signal. So it just increases your antenna size, basically, or is it? It, it takes it, it some well, active. It takes filtering a, so as well. say for so for example, where I at my primary campsite where I'm parked, mm-hmm. I go from 100 negative 114 negative 112 depending on the day signal. To about negative sixty five wow. seventy. Oh, um, logarithms, to, everyone remember. It is it is a huge boost. So I went from a so I went from on a on a good day six hundred k on a bad day one hundred ninety six k be you right. know like really bad to now I'm clocking six megabits down six megabits up. Wow! And I went from a ping time of that is a real usability improvement. I went from a ping time of around three hundred and eighty milliseconds to thirty two milliseconds. Thirty. 
too. Yeah, I mean, that's, it. That's, no, no, that's no, no. quite reasonable. Uh, the studio, I mean, by the way, the studio's pink time right now is not much better. It's twenty two point seven. Oh. So Comcast is taking a crap right now. Screw you, Comcast. Uh, so, anyways, huge. So it's again, it's WeBoost RV. Um, it's extremely tricky to set up because the uh, the antenna that receives the cellular signal yeah. and the internal antenna that boosts to your devices have to be far far enough apart that they don't pick each other up I and see. just create a yep. Yep. and so that I got all that worked out and then I and so then it started to become a matter of well why why now that I have six megabits why am I still getting horrible page load times why am I getting horrible so I I, I started looking at so I set up. A local DNS server, yep, of course, naturally. So, so I set up a local. What did you go with? I said, oh, I, I just set it all up on the on the uh, Cradle Point. Oh, nice. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Once you go into advanced mode, it has a DNS server That's and all that great. kind of stuff, and so that was super easy. Uh, then I started running Netalizer, and so again, I'll have a, I have a, I'll have a link to Netalizer. You can run it on your Linux rig if you have Java, or you can run it on Android. Again, it's Java, um, and it clearly showed it clearly showed that I was behind a proxy server. And because this is a MiFi connection on AT&T, to me, it makes sense that they would probably be proxying people's traffic. Mm-hmm. The problem, well, there's a lot of like, carrier-grade net that goes on with yes. cellular stuff. And, yeah. The problem is, is I do not like AT&T as a company. I do not trust AT&T, and I definitely don't. I have don't. a reseller of AT&T as my primary phone, so I, yeah. I have experienced exactly the same thing. And I don't want AT&T knowing everywhere I go on the web. Absolutely not. Especially because, honestly. And they do the super cookie thing. And yeah. Like, yep. and, and honestly, I search for some disturbing stuff for Unfiltered. Like, I don't really want that associated with who I am as a person because it's, does, it's not representative. That's of, a business. It's yeah, a research thing yeah, exactly. and it's not representative of who I of who I am and so <laughs> but they have no idea like boy he sure looks up a lot of things about Vladimir Putin like no I don't I don't have a thing <laughs> for Putin I mean yeah I love that he wrestles bears with his Everyone shirt off <laughs> but that's not a thing of mine and I really want to come up with a solution that is super Linux friendly that avoids this problem now it doesn't have to be network level if I could just do it on my laptop and my lady's laptop okay yeah but, uh, so she's running Mate and I'm running Gnome. I'd like to have – and I, I would love to have something that integrates in with the desktop environment if possible. So for her, it's just an easy toggle on, uh-huh. toggle off. Like it would be if she had a Mac or a, right. God yep. forbid yep. a Windows box. Whew. I'm sorry, Wes. Shh, Chris, you're scaring everyone. I'm sorry, Wes. Uh, and I, I was – I got a few suggestions. I've got IPV, IPVPN, I've gotten private interface, and of course, Tink has been a topic before. Oh, right. Yeah. But, the, but the solution, the problem I'm trying to solve in this particular case is I want something that is as fast as possible. Yeah. I just want to tunnel around my ISP as much as possible. And the other thing that's particularly tricky is I think sometimes like the MiFi, when I go to like look up where my IP is or when things try to do, can we access your location in my browser, they show that I'm in Dallas. When I'm in Washington, mm-hmm. so it I, I don't know where you know, how, I've seen that as, as well on cellular. I don't know how they're routing that. It might be one horrendous NAT that we're all behind. I don't know, but I would like something that is performant, yeah. that is easy to um, enable, and also definite points for something that's easy to set up. Because I try out so many different distros, and then I take them home. I don't want to have to like load a kernel module to do like. Uh, um, what's the new one we just talked about? WireGuard. WireGuard. Or, I, you know, I don't want to have to install a whole bunch of pa- – I mean, yep. I could do it, but it needs to be something that's fairly straightforward to get going on different distros and whatnot, too, mm-hmm. if possible. I don't know, Wes. Does anything come to mind for you? I mean, I've used a few different, like, private VPN providers. TorGuard comes to mind. Private Internet Access is one that's in the news a lot and talked about, and they have fairly good ciphered suite selection and that, and that kind of thing. Uh, I do I, – I know I, I've 
had some friends playing with like getting that all integrated with Network Manager in GNOME oh, in particular. Man. Yeah, that'd be you nice. know like having the the OpenVPN files. OpenVPN probably should be pretty reasonable performance. Obviously, there's a lot of like that was sort of one of the things I was thinking about was OpenVPN on a DigitalOcean droplet. Yes. But at the same time, I don't want to be I don't want to be in the position where I'm here at work and Hadia's at home and all of a sudden our VPN's not working and now I need to go troubleshoot a, a, an installation. So right. that's not. That's not huge on my list, but, but there that's are, the best solution. I have seen some scripts out there that will you can kind of get it like where it'll when you want to use the VPN. I mean, you'd have to make like a GUI, a desktop file or something for her maybe, but for you, if you could run a script, it could spin up a droplet, install everything, provision it, start everything. So you might have a little bit more of like a, it might have a delay, but it would be more reproducible. And then turning it off and on again might actually fix it. So let's see. Uh, TechMav links to a DigitalOcean uh, tutorial on setting up a basic VPN on Ubuntu 14.04. There's also a, a fair number of options. SSH will be less efficient, of course, but there's both the SOX proxy and using it as a, a ton. So interface. nobody wants to say go with something like TunnelBear or – I mean I will say I, I use TorGuard just for some – So TorGuard is not, not like a, say, like not a the Tor best. thing. They're just using the name Tor. Yeah. I think they also – like they have servers that allow torrents. Uh, oh, 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 well, okay. So, yeah, okay. So this Which is, is obviously not the main concern here. Um, so anonymous VPN service. So you I'm like not going to say they're the best. I've just like, been grandfathered you, in on like a really good deal. So I pay like okay. $2.50 a month or less or something. So. Okay. Uh, hmm. They have a fair number of servers. There's private internet access is fairly well reviewed. Uh, they just had a big thing in Russia where they're pulling out of Russia because Russia is requi- has a new law requiring right. them to keep logs. I saw that. Which so they're they shutting down their at Russian At least say servers. they don't do. That's hard to audit. I know on the R Linux subreddit, they've had it posted a few times. Like a someone has made a great list and review of these VPN services. And obviously, for the VPN services, what you're really paying for is like hiding amongst the crowd. Otherwise, and and you know using their servers in different countries. Otherwise, if you're just concerned about proxying past your immediate ISP, DigitalOcean works just fine for that too. Hmm. So I've seen NordVPN and IP Vanish. Does anybody in the mumble room have any suggestions for either DIY or DIY? Or uh, a service that they trust and like. It's pretty scary to realize when you're being, you know, yeah. tracked. Trusting and sharing trust hard. Yeah. I definitely – see, I was hoping to hear from somebody who's like, yes, I like these people. And yes, they they acknowledge that Linux exists. And like, so I looked into like, for example, TunnelBear because that's one I've seen advertised on YouTube. And the thing about TunnelBear is, like, it feels like they begrudgingly support Linux. Like, they kind of... So, I guess what kind of support... I know a lot of them have their own custom clients, but... As I would long like, they have, like, an OpenVPN file, that, right? That's, that's true. As long as they do. Uh, I would love... Here's what I really want from that, is I want to be able to link somebody to something. Here, read this. That's okay. really what I want. I see. But, yeah. you know, if no, I can That's fair. That's fair. I'm, which is what I don't really have if I roll myself, either. Right. And um, you're the support person. And then, and then the, the I guess the the other question is: Is am I going about this all wrong? Should I just not worry about it? I feel like maybe even from a performance standpoint, I should worry about it, even if, even if it's not from a data security. Well, if you're at least, especially if, if what those DNS numbers that you're talking about. Horrible. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I, I fixed that by just using my own local DNS. Right. But you know, I didn't even think about the fact that the router would just pass on the DNS from the I, whoever wants to use their ISP's <sighs> DNS. It's right. disgusting. Yeah. Does OpenVPN's AWS image count? So this is an instance that I would run on AWS? That would right. probably haul balls. Hmm. Well, it's like they're a blessed image. Now look at Rikai here. Rikai is also linking to Viper VPN, who I've heard of before, um, from, golden, from goldenfrog.com. And it's uh, their Golden Frog support here. It talks about uh, using Ubuntu 
And I like that. Like they tell you, they tell you what packages to install, so that's doable. Because then, yeah, I'm gonna have to play with this, and maybe I could. I, I'm gonna have to see. Maybe people know a good review somewhere. They uh, reviews they reviewers they trust from their from like a security and performance standpoint. Because that's the other thing. Yeah, is you can read reviews about these things, and I don't really care if the VPN service provider knows what I'm doing. I don't really care about that. No. I, what I really really care about is performance, and I would like the fundamental technology to be sound. Yeah. Right, right. And, you know, like you want ciphers that aren't ten years old. You want, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm, right. mm-hmm. And so maybe the maybe the best solution, and maybe it's worth the exercise of setting it up myself. I just, you know, I've I've run VPN servers before in the past, but they were friend users where I had to constantly reset passwords. I on. will say, DigitalOcean or some of the other ones have some exciting possibilities where you could have a step where it pings some of their test servers or DCs and figures out what the best place to spin up your new VPN proxy is, which could be particularly good from a MiFi. Right, right. The uh, uh, private internet access has some Linux support uh, as compatibility things, but they also have a thing where you can set it up where uh, DDWRT uses their stuff. Yeah, that would be nice. Mm-hmm. That would be nice. Network too. level does make it simpler, especially Digital. if you know that you're always being tracked. That's true. The other nice thing about that is then I don't ever have to worry about distribution reloads or working. And if it breaks, you're fixing it for yourself just as much as for idea. <laughs> Huh. Yeah. That's just the problem is that I don't – I looked through the Cradle Point software and I didn't see, see. anything mm-hmm. that talked about VPN so, support. So I would have to run a separate device and probably put it in between. And, right. and to give you an idea, all of this is running under my dinette, which is also means it's in a very small tight space because they're under, they're under benches. You're fitting it and you're rolling home here. But the awesome thing is – is if you came over to the uh, RV right now, you would have no idea that I'm doing this because I ran everything. At, I brought the wiring in through where the slide's at, and the, mm-hmm. it goes right up into the into the benches, and so you can't see any of the oh, gear. Oh, that's so cool. Which, when you think about the limited counter space and whatnot in an RV, that is such a win to have. I just I have I have extremely powerful Wi-Fi because it's 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 a forty it's forty seven feet long. So, or 37 feet long. So it doesn't, it, it's not like you need the craziest Wi-Fi router ever. Right. Pretty so reasonable. I, everywhere, in, in, everywhere in my campsite, I, I'm on Wi-Fi, which is great. That is awesome. Because I don't have cell signal out there, so to be able to be on Wi-Fi through the one unlimited AT&T Wi-Fi thing is perfect. Mm. And this is really the last little bit, um, is this. And I, they also block, they also are apparently intercepting FTP connections. They don't mess with VPN or SSH, though. You know, I've seen some stuff on on AT&T stuff, weird stuff too. Like uh, I, w- I was playing with one of those, uh, what's that like separate terminal for Android that, uh, do you know what I'm talking about? No. No, but I probably have used it like way back in the day. Termux, that's what it's called. Okay. And they have their own repos and stuff so you can install it without root and have like without having to install it. I like that, Wes. We, we can talk about it. But I noticed that like over just the cell signal, I couldn't hit the repos. And once I VPN'd up, boom, no problem, downloaded it instantly. So it's like you really you really can't trust the major wireless carriers to provide you with the kind of peer uplink you would get from like a business grade or a, you know, when you're running your own BGP. I it's sad to say. I don't think I'm I don't know. I don't think I, I don't think I've come to a solution. I don't know if I have. Anybody in the mumble room, any other thoughts before we move on? I like that some good check suggestions in the chat room. Hey, uh, Chris, Leo had a question uh, regarding your issue with your ISP. Oh, what was it? I didn't see it. Sorry. I, I think it went by before I got a chance to catch it. No, I just was talking to uh, WWNSX for that. Um, my question is, so if I understand what you're trying to do is you're trying to get around the 
bandwidth block that your ISP is doing. Is that correct? It's not so much that I wouldn't call it a bandwidth block. I would say that it would appear that the proxy server itself is in, in introducing a certain amount of additional load time and latency. And I just don't like them tracking and watching everywhere I go and doing their super. I would also, I would, I would presume that's where their super cookie injection happens as well. Yeah, as you oh. leave their network. I yeah. All right, so when I was in my networking class, this is the question I had for my teacher, and maybe this applies to you and maybe it doesn't. As I understand it, what ISPs do is they get a block of addresses and they have a certain amount of bandwidth that they can divvy out to those that block. And so I'm not sure if what you're trying to do is getting around that divvying or if no, I understand I would think it if there's any if there's any bandwidth controls that's going to be at a much lower level. Uh, that's not happening at the proxy level. That's an, at the proxy level. That's a protocol level application layer thing where you're looking at the individual HTTP connections and traffic and the images and the and the and the web pages being sent back. Um, and in the cases of an HTTPS proxy, uh, you you may in some cases actually have like some sort of way. Like you know, corporate proxy servers do this too, where they actually have a signed certificate where they can be a man in the middle for HTTPS traffic, or maybe they're just passing it on. Who knows? But if they're actually doing any kind of throttling or quality of service control, that's going to be happening at the network level. That's going to be happening, you know, probably, and I know this for a fact, actually, based on conversations I've had, that can even actually happen at the individual cell site level. And uh, that doesn't happen at the centralized proxy server, which appears to be in Dallas from from what I can tell. But what it does mean is where, where performance does become a factor is instead of my HTTP traffic going to directly to the end destination – it is going through a data center in Dallas first, and the problem is, is any any performance Latency. issues in but yeah, and there and at every stop of, of the route, every hop of that trace route where you could, where between me and that proxy server could be a potential point of slowdown, performance issues, increased latency, and you know that they're running it through some sort of edge box that's doing processing, tracking, index. Right? So like they're actually... They may they're, even be doing they, image de- de- they, degradation. They're looking at the packets. And yeah. You just want them to pass it through like a dump pipe. Right. And so what I want to do with a VPN is I just I just want to give my, my, my web traffic a clear path to the end VPN point and then out to the web from there, which in, hopefully would be a quicker, setter, shorter set of routes because when you do non-HTTP traffic, you don't go down to Dallas. So that's my hope. I've also had pretty good experience with, I don't know about necessarily on um, cellular, I haven't tried it there, but on like Comcast or other like commodity home sure, connections sure. where I'll, I'll just use SSH with, as a layer three device, um, making a ton device to a DO droplet that I spin up. Mm. And I have, I have several machines in Europe that sometimes I want to sync larger <laughs> yeah. files between, let's just say. And I don't know if it's just congestion more at my local level, but even just proxying to like a droplet in San Fran, and then using their pipe to Europe, I can I'll max out my my local connection, no problem. Mm-hmm. Where I'm pulling like two megs down, otherwise. So yeah, I've run into this too. I've run into that same thing too. You do you can maybe benefit too from other providers' better connections to other areas once you've gotten out of your local area. Yeah. Well, interesting. Okay, so if you have suggestions, if you have ideas, linuxactionshow.reddit.com or uh, tweet me at chrislas if you just want to link me to, to a service you use and trust. I would love that. It's just one less thing I have. One of my goals in the in the any rover incarnation that I have, and this one I hope to be the most teched out ever, is even though I want I want to have like crazy cool stuff in there, I only want to be 
managing and installing stuff that's really necessary. If I can use if I can use something because the content of my data is not the paramount issue here. It's a consideration, but it's not the paramount issue. I feel like it does open it up to potentially using a service provider because I'm just not super concerned about that aspect. Yeah, right. Like, I'm not looking at kid porn non- or something. Yeah, and anonymity is not the major concern. You right. just want to get around your right. local ISP. You know, it, and it sucks to even have to worry about it. It's 2016, and these practices should have gone out in the 90s. And if you want to, ha- if you want to just break away from this, and you want a service provider who just wants to make mobile simple and give you a data pipe, check out Ting. In fact, go to linux.ting.com. When I hit the road and my Ting, my MiFi, I, I activate that thing. I've got the Netgear Ting MiFi, and the thing I love about that son of a gun is it's got an LCD screen right on the front. And before I got that, I was like, oh, that's a gimmick. What a waste of battery. Well, first of all, it turns off right away. And second of all, the thing has a ridiculous battery. The thing has a bigger battery than – the thing has such a big battery that you can actually charge other devices with it. That's how big the battery is. And uh, the LCD screen gives you real-time data usage right there on the MiFi that is screen. awesome. Very nice. When you have three, four, five, six devices pulling data off this thing, super nice. Plus, it gives you a list of all of the Wi-Fi clients. Ting is mobile that makes sense. It's no contract. It's no early termination fee. The arrangement is you just pay for what you use. So for me, this works out pretty well. When I go on the road, I do end up using more data on my phone. I do end up making more calls, and I don't really change my texting at all. Uh, And so the month of July might be one of my more expensive Ting months. It might actually be like a $55 $60 bill. Possibly. That's with three phones. You know, that's traveling from Washington to Montana and back for eight days. Like, that, that's going to happen. Yep. The rest of the year, my Ting bill is like 30 bucks. And it, I mean, it's just there's nothing that beats that. So Ting has a savings calculator. You go in there, you put in your information, see how much you would save. Try them out. See if you're – that's a litmus test. See if you're a good fit. It really feels like wireless for adults. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah of course I want a tether. Yeah. And I don't mind – I, you know, when you're on Wi-Fi, you use it. And when you're like, yes, I used your service, I'll pay you the yeah. fair market rate for your yeah. service. And for those of us who really kind of get sick and tired of the whole OEM holding back the updates oh paradigm, God. and like, especially when you follow tech news and you mm-hmm. know that there's crazy exploits out there and there's some of these things are just running kernels full of holes. And that kind of stuff eats away at you when you're a tech-savvy user. That One of the things that's great about Ting is – they have – there's no incentive structure in their business to withhold updates, to get in that – to even to even get in that position. So one of the things I, I think the sweet spot is now, you get a Nexus device. Yes. They put the 6P and the 5X on sale just about every other week. The 6P is on sale again right, right now. now. on that. Yep. Prime the Prime Day. day. Yeah. Happy Prime it's Day, like, everyone. It's like, 100 and, it's like 150 bucks or something. Know. And the 6P was like – Four hundred. Yeah, it's just check them out. So you get you get you get one of the Nexus devices. Either one's still a good phone, and you yeah maybe it doesn't have edge screens or something, but it is a fully up to date monthly updated Android Pure device. Android, and it's you put it on the Ting network. They don't have any contracts. There's no locking of the phones. Nothing like that. They have GSM and CDMA. And I uh, just threw a link. Their GSM SIM cards are on sale right now. One dollar. One dollar. I'm buying. I'm gonna buy. Right? Like, yeah. I'm gonna buy like ten. You should probably tell Noah. Yeah, actually, yeah. If you have Telegram on that, I will. You, you should tell because you'll buy a whole batch because uh, it's ridiculous because you can hold on to those SIM cards and then put them in when you're ready and then you just pay for what you use, no contract. Just start by going to linux.ting.com. That gets you $25 in service credits if you buy one of those $1 SIMs. So then, so then you have $25 of service credit, which is – that's great. Yep. Uh, that's going to get you more through more than like for, through a month, likely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then if you want to buy a device instead, they'll give you twenty five dollars off the device. Then you just get the device from Ting. 
They have great dashboard, great customer service. You can talk to human beings. They're a cool company, and they're backed by two cows. So you, can, you just can't lose. Check them out, linux.ting.com. All right, so uh, there's one story we have to talk about. One more update. We haven't even gotten <laughs> to the main show yet. This is, no, this what's, is, cr- what's happening? Jeez, man. Some of the, some of the show, Tech Talk today, yesterday, 50 minutes long. Whoa, that's yeah. unheard of. I did tell, uh, it is worth listening to, though. There is a story in there. There was a major technical snafu that happened to me as a result of production ongoing in the studio while I was gone that I did not expect. Oh, man. I, I share that I'm, story. It's embarrassing and it was super confusing there's no way i could have ever predicted it i don't think i could have ever foreseen the issue and i don't think i could have troubleshot or resolved it any faster than i did and there was no way for noah to know it was happening yeah nightmares so i tell that story in tech talk today yesterday so let's talk about a story that we're all telling each other before the show started you can now run the unity desktop on windows 10 Thanks to that bash on Ubuntu business. Um, what is happening? My life as I know it is upside down. GitHub user Guerrera24, of course, has managed to achieve this. After doing all sorts of tricks with Compass Config Settings Manager and all that goodness, he managed to run Ubuntu 14.04 LTS with the Windows X server environment and then the Unity desktop environment on top of that. There you go. And then later... Because that wasn't good enough, also got XFCE running on top nice. of Windows 10. So the only question I have is, uh, Wimpy, how long until Matei is running on Windows 10? <laughs> uh, it'll have to be a community endeavor because <laughs> I will never run Windows 10 personally. I don't know, Wimpy. You say never say never. I hear it's really taken no. off. <laughs> so can no. we also piggyback on Windows convergence and you just run an Ubuntu on your Windows phone now and boom, boom convergence as well. Done. Problem solved. Huh. Yeah, okay. All I right. do wonder though, like, is this really fun like opening up? Are we gonna see like less of the MacBook Unix developer craze? Because now instead of getting the weird <sighs> OSX older FreeBSD user land, you can run Windows and have Outlook and Adobe and then also a real Linux you know, environment to to work with. You know, I think maybe I can't remember if it was Daredevil who was saying before the show, uh there this really is going to be one of the easiest ways to install Linux software. It really well, is going yeah. Because there will be people who do all of the legwork, all of the esoteric little hacks that you have to do, and they'll package it all up in some sort of MSI or something. And you'll be able to install I bet you there'll be like vagrant support and like all kinds of stuff. <sighs> Damn it, Wes. Mm-hmm. I don't like that at all. We can run Mumble in Ubuntu on you know, the Windows kernel right here. In the I'll tell you what, prison. though, Wes. Uh, it, it, it surely was 10 years ago I saw Mac users that were attempting to run GIMP on Mac OS with X Windows on Mac OS. And now Apple doesn't even ship X11 right. on the Mac anymore. I think, I think they'll try it. But it's such a jarring – well, I don't know. I don't know. I shouldn't I – shouldn't, I, I, to me, it feels like it's such a mishmash jarring difference that – if you really want that, those tools, you just run the Linux desktop. That's true, but you do get like you get Python, you get Ruby, the the shell. Even if it's dated and you don't get the nice like you know have command line arguments any which way you want, you can run a lot of the basic like deployment tools. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what it does do. I think, and maybe Rikai would be a person to ask. Is uh, Rikai does it does it make you want to run Windows ten? So he, oh yeah. Rikai is uh, he's a he's a multi OS user, 
Um, he, he'll run them all. Yep. But he, I would say his daily driver is the one that has his Steam library and game library, and that's his Windows 7 desktop. And he's sworn off Windows 8, sworn off Windows 10. Um, but eventually, you know, every Windows 7 user realizes they will the have, inevitability. I mean, it's that or abandon it. And when you look at this and you go, well, shit, I, Rikai, is, he likes to play with Linux tools and, and software too. And I, I, you got to think this makes it a little more appealing to switch to Windows 10. So what I think it really does is it just sort of greases the ramp onto Windows 10 for more technical right. Windows users. And that even that kind of pisses me off because I think they would make good Linux candidates. They would make good Linux candidates. Yeah. So Rikai says, in a way, yes, it'd probably make developing JBoss Ruby stuff easier. See, right. Mm. It, the utility of it is just uh, infectious. Damn it. And I mean, and then and it just it's just unfortunate because then we fall back on the philosophy. You know, it's less of like look at what it can do because if you can use a Windows desktop to do right. 90% of what a Linux desktop do, and not in the same way, and not with the same And it's not that flavor. the falling back on the philosophy is bad. No, it's not It's bad. that the philosophy only speaks to a niche of the niche. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And then and when you're, when you're trying to sell to somebody who's got to get some work done, the selling on the philosophy could be particularly They're hard. like, I don't care. I just I have to get this done by Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. So let's feel better about Linux. Oh, yes. You guys, you got, okay, good. So there's some pretty cool technologies coming to the Linux. I'd say let's just call it the AV stack in Linux. Yeah. Um, we all are users of Pulse Audio and most of us – Whether we like it or not. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also GStreamer. Even a lot of KDE users mm-hmm. are GStreamer users. So let's start with Pulse Audio. There's something pretty damn cool that could make future podcasts much better coming to Pulse Audio. So get, get excited for all you podcast listeners out there that listen to any Linux podcasts that sound like they have crap audio because beamforming in Pulse is coming to Pulse Audio. Now, you might think of beamforming as a Wi-Fi technology. Right. You That's what we hear about yeah. most of it, especially in the newer standards. Yeah. It's a concept used in various aspects of signal processing, including radio waves. But in this post, they're talking about using it in audio. The basic idea is that you have a number of microphones or a mic array in some known arrangement. It is, an impo- it is then possible to point or steer the array in a particular direction so sounds coming from that direction are made louder while sounds from other directions are rendered softer. Uh, now, practically speaking, you could really see the value of this on a laptop. It doesn't have to be some big, sophisticated mic array. For example, you might want to focus a mic on the person who's speaking on a laptop. Say you had a laptop microphone and you had something like the Logitech uh, 930 here, which or, or, or C920 perhaps, or 920C. Super popular webcam, one of the greatest. I think also on sale on Prime Day. Oh really? I, at least I saw some 920s on there. This yeah. is a, that's a great webcam that works great with Linux. If you guys want to get it, you should you should check it out. Um, and the, the that webcam has two microphones. And in some situations, like under Windows, it uses some Logitech software to actually use one microphone to listen to background noise and one microphone to listen to your face. I was about to say that's a great way to think about how this technology works. Like if you have you know microphones around the edge, you can you know that that certain sounds hitting those. Mm-hmm. You really want to subtract. And that's just like certain high-end uh, Android devices do that for your calls. The iPhone's been doing that for years with your calls. They have mm-hmm. multiple microphones, and they use that to isolate your voice. Now, you could, in a, in, a, in a more sophisticated setup, you could take advantage of a much wider array of mics. Right. But this is something that they're working on in the next version of Pulse Audio uh, that could be just uh, as applicable to anybody that has a laptop that could make the Pulse Audio underlying software – be able to focus on your mouth and, get, and 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 cut out some of that background extra sound and warbles and all that. Especially when it's like 
you know, you really go from a situation where it's like you have one mic or you have three mics, and right now it doesn't matter. <laughs> but yeah. it, six months when this is pushed to our laptops, that you could have a, a noticeable difference mm-hmm. in the sound quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm really excited about it because it, you know, it could help. There's also contributors. some like, great pictures here, and if you follow oh, yeah, the link, was. he yeah. has a he has another article. He links to like labbookpages.co.uk, and yeah. they've got graphs, they've got diagrams, breakdowns, they've got some C programs you yeah. can compile and run yourself. It's <laughs> really cool. This is one of the geekiest and coolest posts, and it, it it really helps you appreciate the amount of knowledge and research that these developers right? have to these do. That have people doing solving real problems. And it has nothing to do with actually writing code other than it helps you design the, the, the right code. In fact, along those same lines, this next update is another perfect example where they have – they've done scientific um, um, studies. They have done uh, demos. They have, they have graphs. GStreamer is getting a virtual reality plugin and something called Sphere, S-P-H-V-R. This is coming to a GStreamer near you soon and uh, it's going to make VR on the Linux desktop a little better. Now, this whole, whole post is freaking phenomenal. It's it, like it has an introduction to just the spherical coordinate system in general. If yes. you're a little – if you haven't done that for a while, it's – yeah, it explains uh, the uh, difficulty uh, of under like capturing the full information of spherical video yeah, and the, all the colors, great space. visuals that show that. Oh, it's it really gets me excited to play with GStreamer. I played with it a little bit recently, trying to do some uh, some RTP streams for VoIP stuff. It's a fantastic library. Yes. There is so much you can do. It's so composable. It's awesome. I'm really excited to see like they're really pushing forward. You know, I, we said it with AI and Minecraft, but I feel like for VR now we're finally seeing like. You know, especially with like HoloLens and you get you kind of get like and the Oculus and the Vive not really supporting Linux. It, it gets depressing. You're like, are we where's Linux on these frontiers of things that are really getting all the tech press yes. these days? And it's really cool to see behind the scenes people working on it. Yeah. And and, and that they're super sharp. Yes. It makes and me want to help. Them. I mean, like, I don't know, but makes me want to awesome. pick their brain, too. Yeah. It's really good stuff. I also liked the announcement of Sphere. So it's, uh, S- again, SPHVR. It's a Python video player that's using these new GStreamer VR plugins to give you a video player capable of opening um, a URL which has a mapped spherical video coordinates in it and then it can play them back and the other thing it can do is if you have like the like i do if you have the oculus dk2 which is the last oculus i got perfect uh you'll be able to manage display rotations and stuff like that to work with the oculus using that is so cool super cool so anyways we got a little update on the vr front maybe it'll go nowhere but it's nice to see it being done by really really smart sharp people and it being done at the infrastructure level and all of this is open source, so you mm. want to you use it for your own things? Go for it. I love that. I love that. So I want to take a moment before we go any further, and uh, I want to thank Noah for stepping in and doing the hosting last week. Just did a phenomenal job. And beyond just the actual hosting himself or itself, which is the least – which is the least amount of work. The actual show part where we sit here and talk into these microphones is the most fun. It's the least amount of work. It's And it's the part you guys see. All of the hard work is setting up for the show, is in his case building the, the broadcast oh, profiles so over in OBS. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I know. You had to sit there. I know, Wes. Thank you to you, too, for ba- you know on Sunday, too, for, for stepping in on last and, and, and keeping the chat room warm while Noah set all that Noah stuff up. such a... Uh, it, yeah, Phenomenal. it's so much work. People have no idea how much work it is. And you get a little – if you watched live, you might have got a glimpse of how much – and how <laughs> how many millions of little things there are. It's all to, those decisions. Yeah. And, so know. I really appreciate it. And you know what's really great about Noah is 
he he didn't do it because he wants the mic time. He did it because he wants he, to make sure he loves the network. He wants he the content to stick the around. Audience. And, and he doesn't want me to become like some crazy person who pees in jars and locks himself in a theater. He wants to make sure I get out there and see the open road from time to time and actually take some time off. And so I really appreciate that. And I, you know, he takes his he takes the time out of his of his work and and you know his family. And he it's, certainly has a busy life. It's it's really really appreciated. Also, a big thank you to Ryan. Ryan Sipes from Mycroft, who's often on this show, he stepped in on last Sunday and uh, co-hosted with uh, Noah and did a great job. And, uh, you know, big thank you to Ryan for doing that. It's great to uh, get insights from somebody out there who's working on a very interesting project right now and is following these trends. And it was Ryan, amongst others, who passed along our next story. And it's called Copperhead OS. It is a hardened open source operating system, air quotes, based on Android, and air quotes. Only works with the more recent line of Nexi device eye, uh, but they say it has protection from zero-day exploits. It has firewall and network hardening. It's open source, so it's audited. It has an unofficial port of PAX. Nice. I don't know what that's about, but it's the PAX, by the way, is the uh, kernel self-protection and high-quality ASLR tool, and it has a sandboxing and isolation for apps and services. So there you go. It's called Copperhead. I think it's pretty cool also just to see, like, obviously there are, are already are 5x, 6p ROMs, etc. But this is kind of the one, like, the as still a user of the original Nexus 5, it was such a developer platform. So it's cool to see some more promotion around the 5x and, yeah. and that sort of stuff. It makes me more, more interested in getting one. Yeah, like, it's still going to be around for a while. I don't know about Copperhead itself, so I'll put it out there to the audience if anybody has uh, any experience with it or questions about it? I'd like to hear both. It seems pretty like we're waiting for feedback. I got I got a little bit of a, a of a sense from a few folks in the chat room that there's a few concerns, and in the pre-show, some people are questioning the um, how active, perhaps you could say, PAX is anymore. Mm-hmm. So there's some questions still, but like anything like this, there's a lot to get into. Right, and how, who knows, like how how much will yeah. track upstream? What's the delay on yeah. these patches? It's yeah. Yeah. So anyways, thank you, thank you to Ryan for setting that in to us and thank you to him again for sitting in on the Linux Action Show. Uh, and uh, one last thank you, the most important thank you really, is, is Rikai. I don't know if it comes across. Uh, probably not because basically every great decision that Noah has to make on the fly when he's on camera is probably being prompted <laughs> by Rikai behind the scenes. <laughs> If you see Noah waiting for something, yeah. it's it's Rikai's answer in Telegram. Yeah, and uh, it's Rikai that's down here uh, at all different hours of the shows are being recorded. He sets recorded everything up. To get I it mean, going. It's, yeah, it's crazy. And you know, when I'm not here, somebody has to be in here to turn this studio on, which is a task that has to be done in a certain methodical process. And I think at one point he even got a curveball of a power outage, which oh. is one of the worst things that happens in this studio. Be just because, and things have gotten better since we switched to OBS, so it's not as bad as it used to be. But as fate would have it, there is a bug in Antigros with ZFS. And, no. Yeah. And, it, and it's one that he's reported in the past that they marked fixed that still exists that prevents the OBS rig from booting. Turns out we don't reboot it very often. So we had just assumed. about it. Well, we had assumed since they marked it fixed and we've been, keeping up to, we've been keeping up to date. We assumed it was fixed and wouldn't have an issue with the next reboot, turns out. So not only did he have to, you know, really provide assets when Noah needed them and answer questions and give guidance and pick better titles than Noah picked. But he also had to, like, deal with those kinds of issues. So a huge thank you goes out to Rikai. So really, all of you guys made it possible and I'm, I really appreciate it. And Noah's even threatened about offering to do it again. 
sometime. Wow. So you never know. You never know. What a guy. I know. That guy. That guy. So, Wes, we have to talk about... Nilias? Nilias? Nilas? This is something that we've debated if we should really discuss on the show for a while because it's one of those areas that you're going to not like. It's a weird spot. I'm going to tell you about it and you're going to be like, this sounds like a horrible idea. It has a back-end server side that collects all your email and processes it. It's um, a fork of Atom. It's an an Electron app basically, right? Is that fair? Or it's, you know, it's a, uh, it is a web app that is packaged as a desktop application and uh, they want to charge you for the mail client eventually. So those are all things you hate and uh, you probably wonder why we'd be talking about it. And I'll, I'll give you a reason. They're doing a couple of things that are extremely interesting, uh, mostly around the funding model, about going open source, and about creating a sustainable long-term email client when the future of Thunderbird is a little questionable. So that's uh, that's Nalaeus. And you've been using it for a little while. I have been. And it's we'll call it, let's just call it N1. That's the current version. Yeah. And why did, why did you pick it up? Why did you try it? You know, um, at work, I had some reasons to be – I still had a Windows environment I hadn't interacted with, and then something's changed. And so I didn't need Outlook for a certain set of niche features, exchange features, et cetera. And so I was really looking for, like, a Linux. I was like, well, everything else I do, obviously, is in a Linux environment. And so I was looking for something that had maybe exchange support, but at least was, like, a a functional, maybe pretty – desktop client with just basic email support. I don't do that much. I have email on my phone as well, of course. Uh, and it was interesting because it was open source. I've also kind of followed some of their blogs. They do. They have a lot of blogs about like Python deployment. They have a cool tool that turns virtual environments into dev packages that I've used personally at work. Um, and I also liked that it was like, yeah, okay, it's paid. Uh, maybe that's okay. We've talked a lot. We want to talk about, we have talked about sustainable development in open source. But they had a build it yourself, use it. So I have played with that a little bit. I'm running. So you're running. So you can host your own server component if you want to build it. Yes. The Nihilus Sync Engine. Um, I've had some issues with stability in that, like, I usually have to restart it a couple of times a week Mm -hmm. to get it to. It seems to get into a state where it it doesn't really check updates anymore or it doesn't at least. The client no longer syncs those updates down. I've Um, actually had that issue with the. With their hosted server, too. Yeah. So I don't know if that's not I, – I will admit I'm probably at least one or two weeks behind on their current version. So that, that may be fixed. I, I wouldn't know. Um, but it is pretty cool. There are some limitations, like the exchange support. You don't get the um, active sync protocol in the open source version, so you're limited to IMAP, Gmail, that kind of stuff. Which just probably comes down to a licensing thing. Yes. I, I'm sure they're licensing some proprietary implementation or something like that. That's on. how my – probably Microsoft rolls. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Uh but it is nice. It does work well. But you also then lose a lot of the features of the Pro. Like they have like link track, like click tracking. They have that kind of stuff. I will also say that with this move, they do seem to be pushing the Pro pretty hard. Yeah. So before yeah. you could download their uh, pre-compiled files from their website. And then you had to make some conf- – they have a JSON config file. You had to edit it. And then you had to like change the environment from production to custom. And you put in the URL to your server location. And they also don't provide any authentication for that. So it's all plain text HTTP from the server to the client. So you have to provide your own, you know, SSL proxy. Or I use um, SPipeD by the developer of uh, Tarsnap, which is an awesome, yeah. easy, easy, easy to use thing. Uh, but it does work, and it is it is cool. It, it, it's kind of neat to have like a intermediary that syncs everything down and then kind of proxies your client in Why a smart do you like way. That? Well, they just made like searching works pretty well. 
Um, the responses are nice. The interface. So is their really server clean. side processing that makes the client experience better. Yeah, okay. I, I don't know how much better. Yeah. Um, there's also some losses, right? Like you have to you have to restart this process that doesn't work that well, at least in the versions I've tried. Mm-hmm. And now I installed their latest version, and I can't quite seem. I might have to just sign in once, but. I can't seem to get it. Even though I've changed the config file, I can't get it to reference my server. So maybe you, they might have changed it so that you have hmm. to build it in as a compiler hmm. option. I don't know. Wimpy, did you have a question? Yeah. Wes, did you say you're running your own instance of the Sync Engine? I am. And are you in, did you install that using Vagrant or VirtualBox, or are you running it on the Metal or in Docker or something? Uh, I took their Vagrant file and then... Just ran it, my, built it, built it myself. Following the Vagrant file instructions, it's running in an LXC container. Okay, and once it's running, do you need to? I mean, the instructions here just say you know start it. Is that all that you need to do? Is start it, and then so the client talks to it, and you configure your accounts that way, or do you need to poke at the sync engine at all? It it seemed like a little intermediate. You can tell that they've focused really on. The like they have their own authentication. They've rolled a lot of their own stuff that maybe isn't open source or they haven't open sourced yet for their pro service or their you know their their hosted service. Uh, so the way that I had to do it, at least when I initially configured it, was first you run uh, a command that adds your first account to it. Um, like mm-hmm. I just used a Gmail account, or you can use an IMAP account or whatever, uh, and then you run. Uh, one service, it's kind of like a microservice architecture. So you run one service that's their API that you you talk to, and then you run another service that actually does the background syncing with your various upstream accounts. Um, right. And then and then once you've got those two running, uh, it should just work. You you have to you have to manually edit your config file to add your new account information. There's like a um, account ID UID that you plug in. You plug in the email address and some other things. Um, and then the and the cert, then the API URL, and it, it, for, in the past it's been working. I I did have these stability problems as I was mentioning, but otherwise it did work well. I've been using it, talking to the uh, IMAP interface to an Exchange server just fine. Uh, it's been pretty nice. Huh. Have you tried it, Wimpy? No, not the not the self-host sync engine. I tried Nihilus way 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 back when it was first out with a you know a Gash account just to sort of get yep. a feel for it yeah yeah i uh so i'm always i'm not the reason i was interested in the experiences with the sync engine is the only way i would run this is if i was hosting my own exactly. sync engine and like and i couldn't I was, at work i couldn't run it if i wasn't because i, I can't you know that breaks I, the rules. I, yeah, yeah you exactly. can't talk to your exchange server with, with without doing that yeah and that's that's so uh here's what they say so there's there's a transition happening and i think what maybe i i don't want to speak for wimpy but i you know west have had conversations with you um we don't love email but it is just a it's a it's a fundamental part of our of our job and uh something that can help us sort through different different hats that we wear and and triage our email and one of the things i really like about it is it it does really good to so when I when I open up my inbox, I, I often talk about it. I call it the inbox monster, and <laughs> I go in there say before a show, before Linux Unplugged, and I want to read some emails. But what happens is at the top of my inbox are really super important emails I need to reply to really quickly, mm-hmm. and that's where I always. So it, the system that N one lets me do with uh, uh, setting reminders and coming back, it allows me to triage my inbox in a pretty effective way. And I like that some of those things sync across multiple devices and whatnot. Yep. Uh, so they say N one is free as free as in beer. And uh, 
due to its popularity, the API traffic for N1 users has dramatically eclipsed the combined volume of all other apps they've built. They already sync several hundred terabytes of data for their users, and they're adding tens of thousands of new users each month, which costs them real dollars. And the way they write this, it's plain spoken. Mm-hmm. It's, it's clear English. It's not that red hat speak that I, I got. I kind of – and uh-huh. people were like – you know, I was just kind of having fun, but it was very corporate speak. This is very clear. They say it very straightforward. We're a small venture-funded company with a goal of creating a long-term sustainable business that fuels innovation for email. And I will say – Obviously, the caveat is they chose to make a service where they yeah. relying on the yep. self-hosting, yep. but but that's yep. their business model, and they say it up front. So it is it really is and plain spoken. They kind of make the case for why they think that's a good model, right? In here, uh, they also say uh, they that they really if they're going to make a sustainable business, the law on the long term horizon, they see a risk of continuing to subsidize the free beer version of N one. Companies like Mailbox did this and were forced to sell or shut down before they found their business model. They say, in reality, the beer unfortunately always runs out, which is something we talk about on the show. Mm-hmm. And so I do kind of like it that they have a clear revenue model and they, they take the ad thing and they just, they, just, they just address it directly and they say, why not show ads? Well, if, that's not for us. Companies like Google and Yahoo provide free email services by mining your data and serving targeted ads based on the content. That's not the way they think – that's not the way they want to do business. They say, while well, this is potentially lucrative – it goes against our principles and it's not the business we aim to build. We think there's a better way. So with their quote-unquote pro version, they're announcing a premium version of N1. It'll allow you to continue N1. You can use the, the Nihilus cloud or you can use it for free on your own with your own hosted server. So their revenue, their revenue system, their, their, their model here basically breaks down to we have a reasonable priced version. We've open sourced it and we implement it for you and you can pay us. Or if you don't want to pay, you can go through all the trouble that Wes just went through and you can run it yourself. Is that, is that, a, is that a fair model or is that just basically one hair shy of not releasing the whole thing? Because you're not necessarily providing pre-built builds necessarily. Right. You're not necessarily providing any documentation. You're not making any real clear design choices in the N1 client to make it support the uh, self-hosted sync server. So is that really legitimate, Wes? I will also say it's interesting. That's a great question. Also, they're kind of adding like a new link in the chain here where it's like, there's plenty of services where you're like, do I want premium email to, and, and to pay for it? And I don't have like email or the Gmail. You, they read your stuff. They're making me mon- pay monthly for email. But they don't host it. This is just an intermediate. Like you're still connecting it to an other email account right. that you may pay. Like maybe right. you have Fastmail and then you pay also for Nihilus to connect to it. Well, and the irony is if you have it in Gmail, are you really that worried about this, about your the data sensitivity it, that if too. it's in Gmail? Mm-hmm. Do you really care if N1's sniffing through it? I don't. So, what do you think, Wes? Is this a legitimate model? They get to write open source all over this blog post. I, let's let's do a little search here. So, let's search for let's do a search for open. Let's do a search for open. Just open because I don't want to do two words. So, there's 13 references. If I narrow it down to source, 10 references. So, they've referenced open source 10 times in this blog post. Wow. Do they legit? Can they? Do you think? Do you feel like they can legitimately consider themselves an open source project? I don't know. I mean, it's pretty close. I, you, it does seem to be, and I'll I'll do some follow up. I'll make sure I recompiled everything with the latest stuff and make yeah. sure it all still okay. works. But as long as they give you that option where you can self host, you're comfortable. I mean, I don't know about comfortable. It doesn't make me necessarily want to use their service. Yeah. And I think they are harping on that pretty hard. Um, and they are also kind of 
you know, they started out with it and they switched. But, I mean, they are being transparent, but it is still yeah. kind of like a we were excited for the free thing and it was like the users yeah. that were going to switch. And so it kind of it, it changes. Here's the, the good guy thing they did, though. Uh, anybody who's using N1 now got a coupon to use the paid service for a year for free. Yes. So that's not cheap for them to do. A couple of stats to throw at you. Just, you know, is it an open source project? Well, um, I one of the things I like about N1 is they've shipped 26 major updates. Mm-hmm. They are legitimately iterating on this product. That's why I think you need to find a, a revenue model that doesn't mine my data, which is even more important when they have an intermediary. They launched new features like snoozing and send later and read receipts and link tracking, which are intensely helpful for me when I do certain reports. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that. Uh, they have scaled their back end by 20 times over. They have had 1,200 GitHub issues resolved, 130 poll requests, 24 new themes launched, 20 new plugins, 50 outside contributors, and the repo has 17,000 stars, ranking it 70, number 75 across everything on GitHub. It's actually ranked higher than Elasticsearch, Ansible, Go, or Kubernetes. Wow. So I, I want them to find it. I, 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 do you know what the monthly price is here? Uh Nine dollars a month monthly, seven dollars a month yearly, email. or something like that. Mm. That might be wrong. We yeah, I gotta look. I'm gonna play with it. I've been using it for a few days because email is a big problem for me. Right, and all my email is essentially public, anyways. And most of what I read on air, uh, some of it's not. But the stuff that's not, again, it wouldn't wouldn't ruin me if it got published. It's nothing really. There's no Snowden leaks in there or something. Right, uh, and the email that I'm super serious about. Uh, I have PGP encryption. And I, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, and they've had some pretty cool pairing with Keybase yep. to work that into the client. They also have been working with them. So if you use Nylas, you can jump the line on Keybase and get yourself a Keybase account. Oh, that's right cool. Away. I didn't know about that because I already have a Keybase account. So that's cool. Yeah. Um, Keybase is, I don't know, you, maybe you're not a big fan of Keybase out there, but for me, it makes, it makes GPG encryption approachable to just about every audience member, and I have had people take advantage of it to send me confidential things, and I'm extremely thankful for yes. the, for that service. So integrating that support into my mail client, because it's already the workflow I'm using, is that might be worth the price of admission right there. And it's pretty neat. Like, I, I tried it out a little bit. Maybe you and I should send some email later. Oh, uh, yes. Ooh. Hello. Uh, you know, you just, like, you go in there and you can search for your Keybase friends or people you know on Keybase or people on Keybase, and then you add their keys. And then when you send emails to them, you have the option of encrypting it using their keybase key. And that's how it should be. Yeah, right. Because it's it's and and it's backed by legitimate GPG security. Yeah. So it's I like it. So N one, it's interesting to see a oh, and of course it's cross platform. It's not just a Linux right. app either. So that's thanks also Electron. For, yeah, it's very it's very useful. They talk a little bit about how they forked it from from Adam in there, which I thought was really kind of fascinating. The UI is nice. It has a dark theme. It does. Yeah. The only I've just had some, I've had a few bugs. My main my main bug is. Uh, I, I tend to leave my email running on one of my virtual desktops all the time. Sure. And after about 24 hours, I get – it integrates with GNOME desktops notifications. So I get notifications of new mail arriving. But when I switch to the mail client, nothing new in the list. I have to close mm. my open. So still some know. things to work out. But it's, it's open source. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Mumble Room. Hey, Mumble Room. Maybe you know. Any, uh, any, uh, any thoughts before we move on? Anyone else? No. Look at that, Wes. Nothing. Nobody thinks anything about N1, about Thunderbird, about email on Linux, about about how to fund open source development sustainably. Didn't we solve everything with web? <laughs> yeah, I think we're going web based. Outlook too. 365. Really? Nobody email. wants email on their desktop as an as a standalone application, even if it is an Electron app. No, that is am I? I do. No. What you do? What you do? 
is you use Firefox as an app or Chrome as an app, you know, market yeah, as an app. I know. No problem solved. Your web based works. Or pin tabs. I use, pin tabs. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I use Thunderbird quite happily. I or love honestly, Thunderbird. Yeah, Thunderbird's awesome. Emacs. Seriously. Yeah. Maybe we should all be using Deco. Uh, Rotten Corpse dropped this one in there. Uh, yeah, shaping thanks, up nicely. Rotten. It's got now desktop convergence in there. This is a uh, pretty nice looking mail client that will be one of probably the premier mail clients, maybe one of the top apps once the new Unity desktop ships. So this is it works in mobile yeah. and it works in desktop config. And if you think about it, screw syncing. I just want the same application yeah. in whatever form factor I'm using. I want the same exact application with the same exact set of data. That's the way to do it. Mm-hmm. I don't need some back-end sync. So I like Deco. Check it out. We got a link to an OMG uh, Ubuntu article that uh, talks about it. It looks pretty cool. Dan Chapman is the one that was talking about it on Google+. Cool, Dan. Nice work. Check it out. Deco. D-E-K-K-O. That's important. Yeah. Now, if you want to get the skills to pay the bills and maybe set up your own N1 server, check out Linux Academy at linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Support this show and get yourself a discount at Linux Academy, a platform to learn more about all of the technologies around Linux, the core fundamentals and all of the great technologies that we all talk about all the time. And also things like OpenStack and AWS, which is definitely its own monster, and the DevOps, quote-unquote, category, which used to sound like a joke and now is like a full legitimate category yep. that people do on, as a full-time gerb. And then, astonishingly enough, Azure courseware, too. It's here, ladies and gentlemen. It's here. They're adding stuff all the time. They have great material. They have a system that will help you regardless of how much time you have available. A little bit of time, a whole lot of time, Linux Academy has a system for you. They have availability planners. You can plug it all in there when you're available. They'll create courseware. They have great pre-done courses you can follow with really easy-to-understand sections. You'll go in there, you log into a dashboard. You'll see how much work you have to do. You can download the material, listen to it offline. Instructor mentoring is available when you want it. Assessments and note cards are great features. And the practice exams are one of my favorites. They also have great study tools, a community full of Jupyter Broadcasting members, and hands-on scenarios that will give you a real-world experience. So if you want to go set up a mail server on your own, why don't you try it out first in the lab? Learn to do it the right way. Get hands-on experience because once you set something up like that, you hit the ground running and you never look back. I think this is a great tool. Check it out at linuxacademy.com slash unplug. Get yourself a discount and support this show. Thanks to Linux Academy for sponsoring the Unplug program, and thanks to you for visiting linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. So, Wes, I could try to stumble all over myself and try to describe what Matrix is. They describe themselves as an open standard for decentralized communication or group collaboration, a fully distributed persistent chat room with no central authority, the missile, the missing signaling layer for web RTC. It's like Slack, but way better. It's like Mattermost, but way more. It's, it's like, like XMPP, but people really use it. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and there's some really interesting developments around it too. So to kick it off, if you're not familiar with it, let's start with an interview I did last year at OSCON with a Matrix developer. Oh, oh, hold on. Hold on. Did you you could hear it, right, Wes? Yeah. You could hear it, but you know what? You were hearing it only to you were hearing it me when I sent it to Noah. I'm going to send it to you. 
So we spent 12 years building SIP infrastructure and got quite depressed in the end because SIP was meant to be like this email, but for VoIP and video, except yeah. in practice, nobody has SIP URIs on their business cards. And the Open Federation, the Open Interoperability thing, just hasn't really quite taken off. So we went and wrote an alternative to SIP based on HTTP, just a really simple HTTP API, where if I want to set up a video call to somebody, I do one hit um, with the offer of what media I want to talk, and you do one hit back with the answer, and that's it, we're in a call. So none of the complexities of SIP with all the, you know, is it UDP, is it TLS, is it TCP, is it, you know, this version, is it that version. SIP is quite old and very fragmented. Just doing it as a, in HTTP works a lot better, and that's one of the things you can use with Matrix. Except Matrix isn't just about VoIP and video. You can also use it for instant messaging. We've got the little drone sitting down there, um, which we're about to launch as an Internet of Things um, demo, um, where you can go and get the video off it uh, via Matrix, but you can also control it. Uh, we went and hooked up people's cars to Matrix, so the car kind of um, sends out telemetry as little blobs of JSON into Matrix, and you can go and consume it anywhere else. So basically, Matrix is a big, open, decentralized object database with PubSub semantics so that anybody can publish any random data they want, and it could be a message or whatever. And uh, over here on the screen, am I seeing like a persistent group chat environment? kind of looks like a bit like IRC and messaging. Yeah. Yeah, so this is one of the classic things you can do with Matrix. Use it as a persistent group chat thing. Um, this is an Angular environment, um, and there are a couple of hundred chats going on there. A lot of these are bridged through into Freenode. Freenode have been very cool and let us gone and actually bridge Matrix into Freenode or, or vice versa. Um, here is another view of the same room, say, um, but a, a more Slack-like environment. So this one's written in React. And so, if you go into it. so this is kind of like a like a team collaboration sort of version of it, sitting on top of the matrix object database. Yeah. Or, huh. And and so I assume in this I could have text, image, video, audio, all those things in here. Yeah. So any JSON you like. So well, you can hear these are just instant messages with people trying to do weird shit with UTF-8. But if we um, go back to this one. Um, if you double click on stuff like a message like test there, you can see it's just arbitrary JSON. So it could be a mRoom message, or if you were doing a video call um, here, it could be a bit uglier. It's a mCall invite, and you've got the description of the media for that call right. there. But it could be drone control. It could be car telemetry, whatever the hell. And my program, my app, just needs to be able to read this and know what to do with it. Yep, precisely. So we... I want to stop right there because he's about to talk about servers. Define some standard types like m.call. Anything that begins m. is matrix and it's part of our spec. And this is where we're going to pick up. So I'll let him just finish off his thoughts here. So matrix itself is not a one particular project. It's not, where it gets interesting. It's yeah, really it's not that. just like where Mattermost is the entire thing here. But it's like Java namespace. So if you wanted to have a, I don't know, com. Google. whatever the hell Google might use it for, then just feel free, go nuts, put data in. So if I wanted to roll this out, what's my, what's my back-end structure look like? Is it a Linux server? What's it running on? So we're providing one reference server at the moment, which is written in Python and Twisted, and um, it's about 30,000 lines of code. Um, it's pretty beta, but it works well enough to have rooms with like a thousand people in it and a couple of hundred um, servers participating, and it runs on well, any OS that can support um, Python, really. Um, some of that is, well, it could be Debian, uh, we've got Docker files, Suzy images, Fedora images, and even somebody made it run on Windows. 
<laughs> so that during so that was 2015 when they had the one implementation. Now we're going to fast forward to 2016. Let's see how how are they doing. Well, there's a couple of new contenders. Uh, Wes, you found Ruma, which is a Matrix home server written in Rust, a home server for like families or what's a, or is a home server like a like your base and then you connect to other servers. What's the home yeah, server? Yeah, exactly. So part of the power of Matrix is kind of the federation angle. So you can make an account and you identify with a home server and then those home servers integrate with other home servers as part of the larger matrix yeah. network. Pretty neat. Yeah. And so, so an application like this written in Rust is pretty compelling itself just because of the advantages of something like this being written in Rust. Uh, but then there's something that has a lot of momentum behind it right now. The chat room was just talking about it during that uh, interview and that's Vector. And Vector is an open source collaboration app. They say it's production ready and it's built on top of the Matrix open standard. And they have Android apps. They have a really nice looking UI. It looks well polished. Yeah. yeah, it really does look good. And so these are full featured collaboration suites that involve not just chat and, and connecting in with IRC, but uh, WebRTC and document transfer and all this kind of stuff. What would what would you see like a work use case for you in Matrix? Well, you know, we at, at my work in particular, we've we've used Slack. We also use Skype for business, and they kind of meet different needs. It'd be interesting if those were integrated. Mm-hmm. Also, yeah. just like with Rocket Chat and the other things we've checked out, Slack is proprietary. You lose control. In particular, at, at my office, like there's like multiple teams have different Slack accounts, and also if you don't use their paid account, you start losing messages mm-hmm. really fast, as as we're aware, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So this would be really interesting. And the other cool part is Slack has like their bridges, like the RC bridge. People really like that. But Matrix does that too. And so like they have, they even have a slap, Slack bridge. I haven't tried it. I'd be really interested yeah. to try it. But yeah, it, it yeah. just like, it sounds so extensible. Yeah. It, it's like a plumbing system for collaboration. Exactly. And uh, they, when I, when I talked to them, I was really, the interview is, uh, it's much longer. It's, um, there's at least another four minutes in that interview. And then I probably talked to him for 15 minutes. I have the interview linked in the show notes if you want to hear the other four minutes. And uh, it it was really they were so far ahead of the puck. So when when I to put this in context, when I was talking to him, this was more than a year ago. Slack was this newish thing that just seemed like IRC that I thought was a joke, and I didn't really it, nobody talked about it at the time. And they were talking about something that's ten times more than Slack. And they were just so far ahead of the of, of where the uh, puck was going that I think they're still ahead of it. And so that's why with these servers just now a year later kind of coming out, I think they're just on time really. Anyways, it's a, it's a fascinating open source project. We've talked about a few of them this week. I will say also just seeing their connection with SIP, um, that's a technology that is deployed at massive scale today. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and so just if, if these people have that kind of pedigree um, – it makes me confident that they can deploy things that really do scale and can develop a protocol that yeah. might actually work. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Spider Oak is uh, working on something kind of like this called Semaphore. And uh, we're going to have a uh, quick review by Mr. Ham Radio in the post show. So Semaphore is another thing kind of like this. But yeah, there you go. So Vector and Ruma, and they're all matrix implementations. Really kind of neat thing. So that is a lot to process. If you guys want to read more about it, we'll have links in the show notes. LinuxActionShow.reddit.com is where you go for any of the uh, feedback topics we have posed to you this week. I will toss it to the Mumble Room one more time. Mumble Room, is there anything you'd like to add before we go? OMG, OMG, OMG. No? No? 
There you go. You see, you could be part of our virtual lug and have nothing to contribute at this point, too, by coin. Please do. <laughs> I tease. There's really nothing. There's not much more to say, is there? I really, I just give them But go try it. Come back next week and let us know what you I think. I miss them. You know, I missed this mumble room, so I got to give them a little bit right. of a hard time. Yeah, if you've tried to, if you've played with any of this stuff, really, let us know what you think. LinuxAction.reddit.com or even better. Show up live. Here's how you do that. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar and then go over there. Get your get this show converted to your local time zone or any of the shows you would like to attend. We uh, have it all listed there and it converts automatically to your time zone. That's how we go. Uh, that's how we roll. And then jblive.tv is where you go to watch it and uh, you join the chat room. You do a bang mumble in there and uh, the jbot who stands by waiting for your commands will uh, deliver you the info. Then we just do a quick mic check. And you're in. Mumble is uh, pretty cool like that. It really is. Although you threw me a curveball second year in a row. Where would I go? I went somewhere last year where Noah hosted and you had to do push to talk and mumble. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 So I sat down to do do tech talk today and I was like, "Um, why can't they hear me? And Mitt Friesen is like, "Uh, we can't hear you, Chris. I'm like, I can hear you. And it took me about 10 seconds. Oh, man. It wasn't a big deal. I figured, oh, yeah, it's push to talk. Yep. Push to talk. Oh, sorry. Yeah, so we like it if you have a headset. Yeah, you, we like it if you use push to talk, and we just check your audio. And if you pass those things and you have some inf- in something insightful or interesting you want to say about one of the Linux topics, we'd, more, we'd be more than happy to have you join us in the Mumble Room. It's, it really is our virtual lug, and if you can't go out and uh, meet with people in Meet Space, why not get the next best thing right here, right here at the Linux Unplugged program? And that brings us to an end. We have avoided the lawnmower one more time, just yes. barely. Just barely. Watch out. He's coming back, Wes. So we got to sneak out of here. Thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, don't forget to submit content if there's something you didn't hear us talking about, or if there's something just burning inside your soul. Maybe a compliment you want to make. Maybe you want to welcome me back. And wouldn't that be nice? LinuxActionShow.reddit.com. You'll find a thread for 153 in there. And then you can also go over to the contact page at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and send us in some feedback. Okay. That brings us to an end of this week's show. We'll see you right back here next Tuesday. You hear that? Oh, Do you hear back. that? That sounds, that sounds like a lawnmower. Out of here. That sounds like a lawnmower. Oh, my. Oh, they ruined the end. JBTitles.com. JBTitles.com. Get out of here. Most of the web runs on servers powered by Linux. Like that one. Actually, I think that one might actually run on BSD. Huh. Uh, is that true, Rekai, or does that, uh, does that run on uh, on uh, Linux now? Most of the web runs on servers powered by Linux. Hey, look, Popey made I it. I secretly use Arch Linux. Oh, wait, that was that was Popey. I miss Popey. I do, too. I haven't seen him for a few weeks. Makes me sad. Makes me He's sad. on holiday. Oh, good for him. Well, that makes me happy. So there you go. Mm-hmm. I did see, I did see like, a, a post recently. I think I did know that. JBTitles.com. JBTitles.com. Let's go over there, ladies and gentlemen. If we could all direct our attention to bangsuggest.com or jbtitles.com. <laughs> Whatever makes you happier. There's been 93 title suggestions in the last 24 hours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now we just need to go through those sons of bitches. Be gentle with them, everyone. 
Let's just sort them out. Bring the best to the top. Who doesn't like a little upvote now and again? Over at JB Tuttles, make that hour, make that arrow take off. Niche Android OS, horrible. Quantum of Solus. Ha 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 ha. Horrible. Those are horrible topics. Horrible titles. Linux Mon Go. Horrible. Unity on Windows. Kind of funny. Yeah, kind of funny, uh-huh. actually. Uh-huh. So. Uh-huh. Yeah, Windows United. Your vote matters. Over at jbtitles.com. It might not matter anywhere else. But at JB Titles, you make an actual difference. Not that it was the core of the show, but go and get Solus is that's good. Honey, I like that's it. good. Yeah, I like it. You know, you know what we need to get more of is uh, direct lines from the show because yes, yes. I, I like when I'm listening to podcasts and I hear a direct sentence. And I'm like, oh, that's the tough. Mm-hmm. So we should do more of those too. Those are those are kind of fun. Thank you guys in the mum room for being here. Oh yeah, we're super no appreciate it. You guys are great. Uh, I'm tur- your son's turning into Spider Kid. Uh oh, uh oh. He my kid, Minecraft maniac. Really? Oh boy. Anyways, I said we'd uh, we'd uh, we'd hear from Ham and get oh, his yeah, review Ham. of Semaphore. So uh, let's bring him in. Hey Chris, how you doing? Good, good. I'm good. I'm good. What are you up to over there in Idaho? <laughs> Too much. Checking out Semaphore. Uh, Sema. 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 Tell me, what do you got all over your hands? Semaphore. What is this? Is this like a a Slack killer? Yeah, it is, but I don't think quite yet. Okay, so when I saw this, I tell you what it got me excited. Probably, maybe even maybe irrationally, is that it's made by Spider Oak, and I thought that was pretty cool. That is cool. However, it's not quite there yet. Uh oh. So it says the world's first zero knowledge collaboration tool is here. Now they say it's here, right there, Ham. They say in the first sentence. <laughs> they say right there, it's here. Now you can collaborate uh, productively and, by the way, privately. Because guess what? Your ideas matter. Uh, that's right. Hashtag channels exist, and you can create teams for your company, for your fam, and for your friends. You just your BFFs. So, uh, what didn't you like about it? Well, it's still early days. Um, there's no Android client yet. It's coming soon. Oh, okay. So I only have the chance to test it on the desktop. The nice <laughs> thing is, is it does come in Debian and RPM packages. Ooh. So completely native to Linux. Uh, they have Windows 7 and Mac support, and iOS support. Uh, mm-hmm. Android coming soon. Mm-hmm. Coming soon. Um, the you can create a channel, but you can't lead a channel. You can't edit messages. Mm. You can't delete messages. Mm. Uh, I tried posting in a YouTube link, and you know, it just gave YouTube link. It didn't like actually have the show up. Um, oh, I do like the link preview because then you know it's worth your time clicking or not. That's one of the nice things that Mattermost does. I think Mattermost does that super well. And so does Slack. Yeah, I agree. Um, now, these things are coming in upcoming versions. Mm. It's just not there yet. Well, interesting. I mean, I like this from Spider Oak. And the thing that they said that kind of got my attention was that it's, a, it's, it's zero knowledge on their part. So they – Definitely. Yeah, and they uh, hackers love weak passwords. Say to protect your security and privacy, SEMA four will generate a secure recovery key for you at sign up, and then store Which it in a safe email place. To you. Huh? That's they interesting. Email that to you. So don't ever lose <laughs> that. Print it. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Hmm. I'm curious what the intended market for this product is. 
Is it like, hey, Wimpy. I think it's like it's like people who want Dropbox and and uh, Slack in one thing, maybe. Okay. All right. Okay. So the Dropbox thing I get because they're you know zero knowledge encryption for Spider Oak One makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. But for a chat tool that is primarily adopted by development teams these days. Why does that need to be zero knowledge and encrypted? It seems yeah. unnecessary and overkill. You know, I'm not sure. You know where I could see this for is journalists, maybe. What about that? Okay, what about journalists yeah. that want to collaborate with something like Slack? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Sure. That's pretty niche, okay. though. Because <laughs> they could also just run what? their own matter most instance. Right? Journalists won't do that, though, no, will they? No, they won't. No, they won't. Typically. Yeah. No. I, I, think that, I think that's a good one. I think, I think you've, you've, found, you've found the market that I was struggling to identify. But this, Boy, I mean, I'm, I, I like that Spider Oak is doing this. I, I, I myself am not really all that tempted. Ham, what, what tempted you to try it? Was it just the Spider Oak name or what? That and it's just the zero knowledge, you know, just yeah. the complete security and privacy. For all um, these things you need to keep per, to, totally secure and private in Idaho over there. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, it, it kind of integrates with their Spider Oak One backup. You know, it's I dig that. Kind of separate, but mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and, and you use it uses some of the Spider Oak infrastructure to send files and whatnot, which is good. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's slightly more expensive than uh, Slack because oh. oh. I think you said Slack is six dollars a user. A user, yeah. So you can try it for free. Now, do they have their own hosted? Uh, do they have their own hosted server, or how's that work, Ham? Did did you do you run it off? Uh, if they're talking about it being zero information, they must run all of the service components, correct? Yes. Uh, there is no way, as far as I have seen, to run your own server. Okay. Um, the, they charge $9 a user. So their, so, so their market is people who don't want to go through the hassle of setting up their own server but still want to ha- have trust in the security of it. Exactly. And there, there is probably something to that if, you know, if I was to set up my own Mattermost server – this uh, spider would probably be even more secure than that, really. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, to be honest. At least uh, after the first couple of weeks, because uh, I'm not going back in that thing once I got it set up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah, okay, um, okay. They, they do have, so they have standard and pro, which is standard is you can have, you know, unlimited teams, unlimited history, $9 a month standard, which is everybody pays their own, roughly $9. Uh, pro team is where the leader of a team pays for everybody else, which is still nine dollars a month. That's kind of nice. Yeah, uh, they have they do have a basic version, which is what I'm trying out now. It's a and uh, you can have unlimited people, but it's still but it it's only thirty day history. Hmm. So are you going to stick with it for a bit, or are you going to move on? trying it out i mean there's no reason for me to uninstall yeah. it i mean you know it's a free version stuff so as uh, i'll as, keep trying out as your buddy richard says what's wrong with that yeah what's wrong with that 